Hey everybody, welcome to the next edition of Cage My IQ. My name is uh, D Bake. I'll be joined by Sam and Miles shortly. Today we're going to talk about the UFC 257 pay per view this Saturday. We're also going to talk about Max Holloway's big win this Saturday and Carlos Condit's win as well with a unique uh, takedown that he used. Plus, we're going to talk about the big uh, announcement that we thought was going to happen on Saturday that wound up being a little letdown. But here is the intro to Cage My IQ, and then we'll get right on to the show. As always, I'm joined by first off Sam. He is our one of our resident MMA bloggers. How's it going today, Sam? It's going great, man. Thanks for having me, Bake, and uh, just happy to be here. Yep, yep. And then also joined by Miles Long from the yeah. Last Direct Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm on my second energy drink, so I'm I'm feeling good. Can't beat that. And and <laughs> if you guys don't know him, he he produces the Last and Rec podcast. It's a great audio podcast. If you need something to uh, to listen to on on your way or to from work, definitely listen to that. And then we right before we get into everything, I got a comment. Gary chiming in with yo yo. And then before we break into any of the action that we got, we have to talk about because Saturday was full of a lot of decisions that were great, not just born fights. Uh, I think, I believe every fight was decided uh, with a finish, which was nice. But uh, before we get into that, I want to bring you the video for one of our uh, potential uh, partnerships with Manscaped. Once again, that's Manscaped. Uh, your balls were thank you. If you want to use a product uh, to trim down there so your your lady, girlfriend, or significant other is not a bat mad about how it is down there, just use the lawnmower 3.0. It's the best technology for trimming down there without nicking uh, your balls. Uh, just use promo code CMI2020 to get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. And once again, that's Manscaped. Your balls were thank you. Now we're going to get right into things right now, guys. Uh, the first topic we have on hand today in the UFC is Dana White's ABC showcase on Friday. As you saw uh, Friday night, he had announced that he was going to meet with 
Habib on Saturday during uh, right before the the UFC fight night card where you saw him go into a room and then they were talking for uh, an hour or so and he was going to announce during the card uh, the future of Habib, which we found out was kind of a letdown because what he said was that Habib wasn't necessarily retiring yet, but he wants to fight, but he wants to see somebody stand out in these uh, next couple of fights to see it, he did say Charles Olivier looked very nice, but I feel like he thinks that he's not there yet because he needs to fight somebody else. But he, he was pointing towards uh, the card this week. I thought he was going to uh, retire, and then they're going to have this the main event be for the belt. But I think he's hinting towards he wants to see something from Conor McGregor. And he wants to get that uh, that second fight with them so he can hit that 30 mark with one of the uh, biggest guys in the sport who produce the most money. Uh, what's your opinion on this, uh, Sam? All right. It, it was a, you know, it was great at first. You know, Khabib retired. You know, his father just passed. He went out on top. It's the middle of January now. It's time to make a move. You know, either you're going to hold up the division or you're going to come back and fight. So, I mean, and to speak on the Connor thing, I don't think he wants to fight Connor. Uh, with, you know, just the this disdain he has for him, the way the the way things went down last time, he doesn't like Connor McGregor. He said it many times. And I don't think anything's going to stand out. He's already beat Poirier. Uh I don't think Chandler, no matter if he does win, is going to get a title shot. I just think it's time to hang it up, man. He's already said he wasn't interested in the GSP fight anymore. Neither one of those guys are interested in that fight now. You know, retire. <laughs> you know, if you're not going to retire, then don't retire. But do something. Because right now, the way I see it, you know, everybody gives him this GOAT status. Saturday was a complete waste of time. Now, now it's Monday. You know, what is he not going to make his mind up again? It's just time to move on. The sport has to move on. The division has to move on and do something. Do Tell us something. So that, that's that's pretty much what I got on it, man. It was a complete waste Saturday. Uh, what do you think about this, uh, Miles? Oh, I'm, I'm completely shocked. See my shocked face right here? <laughs> <laughs> not, not shocked. This was obvious. Of yeah. course, of course he's coming back. I, I knew this was going to happen. So I kind of figured it would happen a little differently, but here's, here's my thought process on this. So he retires and the reason he gives as well, I promised my mom I wouldn't fight without my dad. And since my dad passed away, it's like this, this big emotional thing uh, where it's, it's a thing he used to do with his dad. Now that his dad not is not around, it's like, okay, now it's time for a new chapter in my life. But I think after the initial hit of losing his dad, yeah, I think it's it's the obvious thing to say, well, if that's a thing you did with your dad, then doing the thing will make you feel closer to your departed dad. Yes. So I think there's there's an emotional investment here for sure. There's also quite a bit of uh, professional and financial investment on Khabib's behalf. Um, I don't know if you remember back when we were talking about, I think it was 55 or 56, Shakarova was on the card and she was debuting. And in an interview, she talked about how she, uh, her and her team worked a lot with Khabib and his team. And apparently what he's doing behind the scenes over in Russia, he's working with a lot of these smaller MMA um, 
teams out in the country, uh, especially in areas where MMA isn't necessarily legalized yet. Like Shakarova was saying, that was a big thing for her personally, because in her part of Russia, it wasn't even legal to do MMA for a while. And then when they legalized it, she was the first person ever, much less a woman, to uh, compete in the UFC out of her little podunk sticks ass part of russia yeah so khabib has been putting in a significant effort to try to popularize the sport and let it grow especially in his in his home country um and so he's going to be professionally involved whether he's fighting or not uh he's already invested there but i think like i also understand this as someone who used to do mma someone who used to fight competitively when you're on a winning streak and and when you you sit at the top for a while which for him, it wasn't even the while. It was like, what, three fights, like three title defenses, maybe. He's, I think he's hungry for more. And I, right now, I think, because it doesn't make any sense for him to come back like financially or, or otherwise, because he's, he's got all the money he needs. He could retire very comfortably right now from all the money he made. He could open a, a chain of MMA gyms with just stamp his name on there, charge 300 bucks a month, and get like 50% of the profits from each of the branch locations. He doesn't need to fight anymore. He could, uh, you know, he could he could do what uh, Conor McGregor's doing with a bunch of these franchise deals. And hey, I, I'm Khabib. I'm Nurmagomedov. You want me to sell your dog sweaters? They'll they'll sell. People will buy that shit <laughs> just because his name is on it. So it, he also has pretty firmly established his reputation. I don't think he needs to go in and really prove anything anymore. But I think he hears people kind of whispering around saying like. Hey, you know, he only he has 29 wins, but only like five of those actually mean anything. Right. And so I think that's getting to him a little bit. And after, again, he got past that initial shock of losing his dad. I think he's hungry to get back in. Um, and I think right now he's he's mostly like, all right, well, I'm not going to go full back in. I want I want like basically I think what he's going to do is let them fight it out and see who's like essentially the guy who's going to go for the title. He's like, all right, I want to fight that guy. And then I want my title back and then I want to do more title defenses. I think that's what this is going to lead to is he's going to want to get back into his, his title seat and then just kind of see how long he can hold it for. Um, But yeah, I mean, I kind of saw this, this coming, but if you're going to act, just act, like do the thing. (laughs) It is taking him a while to, to just decide. And Dana White's like, Oh, he he might do the thing. If, if he sees someone who he thinks is good enough, it's like, no, I just, just hop back in. You'll be fine. Like you, you made it up to the, all the way to the top once already. You can do it again. So, Yep. Uh, we got Archie chiming in. Sammy's right. Habib needs to make up his mind and figure it out. Fight or card a career. He's got a reason. What more of a reason than to finish a perfect 30-0? 20-0 is something, but 30-0 is more. If that's not enough, then give it up. And then he also said, Thanks, personally, sorry. I'd rather see another Nate Diaz fight because he puts on a show. Win or lose, he doesn't uh, quit. My, my thing on this is I, I, I think he's going to fight again, but there's been like these little nuances and these little like things here and there that and for some reason I feel like he's going to wind up fighting Max Holloway. Like I, I, I've said this to a bunch of people the past couple of days. Right after Holloway fought, he said like he wants to fight Habib. He wanted to fight him two years ago, but uh, and then they had that uh, press conference uh, when he was supposed to go in and do the fight, and then it kind of fell through. Where like that's the fight that he wants. He wants that. He like, and then 
But Dana White told him uh, yesterday, he was like, just fly home. He was like, you just fought. And then Max Holloway is like, I'm not flying home. Like, I'm staying here in case somebody gets hurt. I'll be an alternate because I want to fight Habib. And there's been this whole talk. Like, I'll get into a little bit about the unfinished business. But for some reason, I think that there's going to be a Habib-Max Holloway fight at lightweight. I just have a feeling for that. It's either that or you're going to see McGregor win Saturday. And then you see if he does it like very quick or like in great fashion, like a knockout, you're going to see Habib go, I'm 29 and 0. This guy is like the, the money man when it comes to UFC. All of his fights produce a lot of money. I can get to that 30 and 0 by fighting him a second time. And I can make a lot of money on top of it. And then I can just call it quits after that. And I would have had, a, and then I get a big payday out of it because I fought Conor McGregor again. And then if I win there, then there's no ifs, ands, or buts about the first fight where Conor McGregor said that he didn't take it seriously because he was going in and out. Like he's actually, McGregor's actually training now getting ready for a fight. He's taking it seriously, and Dana White has said that he expects McGregor to fight three times this year, with this being the first time. And then McGregor actually came out and said, that's true. He's like, I'm fighting three times this year. Expect the real McGregor to be uh, ready. So I do feel like he's going to be fighting. I, I just think that he wants to wait. I think he's going to they're doing the whole like wrestling thing where they're going to make it like a spectacle where McGregor wins and then he does this. Even if he loses uh, or whatnot, maybe, maybe Habib goes to make his decision and then Max comes out and says, Hey, he was like, I want you now. Like, like I'm do a title shot. We got Borkinowski who is about to fight um, uh, Ortega in, in March. They just booked that, so I, I'm going to be waiting a while. I'll fight you. Like, like I've been waiting for this type of uh, big fight. Like, and, and, and let's do it for your belt. I'll move up. I fought guys like McGregor and uh, Poirier. He's lost them, but it's a big difference for like a volume guy to, uh, to fight at featherweight than it is to move up to lightweight, where I think would value how Holloway more with how he, he punches and how he boxes. Like he's very quick. He has endurance. He could be a guy where he can kind of slow down Habib. He'd be a nice foe for him uh, for like a last fight. And I, they would make a lot of money because a lot of people are like Holloway. He's a likable guy. He's from Hawaii. Uh, he's, he's just that guy, but that that's what I think. I think he's not done. But uh, go from that to the co-main event of that fight, uh, of that card uh, on fight night. Carlos Condit defeated Brown 30-27 to and debuted a more solid wrestling and grounding game. Where does he go from here? I'll start with you, Miles. I didn't see it. Uh, I went to, I went to oh, Buffalo man. Wild Wings, <laughs> and then they weren't showing it, which is weird because when you walk in on the door, there's a thing that says home of the UFC – I was like, you guys, you guys aren't even showing the fights. Like, what, what is this? And then I was like, well, can you, can you do my TV? Because I was like, right underneath them, like, just <laughs> yeah. that one. And she's like, guy, come on, just eat your tacos and leave. I was like, all right. So, so now I just cried into my street tacos the whole night and then went home. 
<laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll go to you, Sam. All right, man, I've got to tell you, at the end of that fight, Matt Brown looked like he was expecting a different score. Yes. Like when they announced 30-27 unanimous decision. And I, I don't know what fight he thought, how he thought that was going to play. But even in the first round, even though Carlos was underneath for a good part of that round, he was still more active than Matt Brown. That Carlos Condit that showed up looked like the Carlos Condit of old. He looked yeah. good. He had fluidity in his movement. Striking was just as crisp as ever. And he definitely got a, his wrestling games, I think, more improved now than ever. That sweep, I think, was in the second Was the second round of the sweep. Yes, he threw a round. body sweep on Matt Brown that was – and it came out of nowhere. It was beautiful. He, fight, he fought great from the bottom, uh, defended himself well, got out, of, uh, got out of positions really well. I think Carlos Con- – I had it picked. I thought if Santiago Ponzinibbio won his fight and Carlos Condit won his fight, I thought that would be the next fight to make. Carlos Condit's got another run in him, guys. I, You know, a lot of people are kind of – every time you hear him mention, yeah, he is an OG, but it, it, they kind of say, hey, were you going to fight Dan Hardy when he comes back or Nick Diaz if he ever comes back? I think Carlos Condit can still hang with the young pups in there, and I think he can make a serious – run for the title one more serious run for the title he looked really good but then the other question comes to mind well matt brown was 40 in this fight carlos condit is 36 now i'm 35 that that those aren't old ages but it's kind of older and seasoned for the professional fight game so then the question comes in well has he really you know yeah he looked good against guys like court mcgee who is around the same age and matt now we need to get him in there for his next fight. He needs, I think he needs a top 10 guy. You know, maybe, uh, I, re- I really couldn't play matchmaker, but he, he's talked about wanting the Nick Diaz fight. I would love to see that, you know, so there's a lot of options for him. Yeah, they, they floated a name around there. Ficent, was it Vicente Anique? Oh, Luque. Uh, yeah, Luque. They floated that yeah. name around after the fight. They said that, that that's one that could uh, potentially happen that they would uh, like to see booked because he has been he hasn't fought lately. So you can book that. He's hungry. I believe he's ranked number nine. I believe I think he is in the top ten. Yeah, Luke is in the top ten. So that would be the top ten fight that you would want, and then anybody would want, and then they'd get him back in there because he could. You could see Condor. Uh, do that fight potentially win and then get a potential top five fight and then try and work his way back to that title shot uh, that he once once had the belt for it. I know he was the interim title uh, holder, but he still had the title. All the best guys. He fought GSP. Yeah. J- just imagine him versus Wonder Boy if that fight happened. If that fight happened, what a fight that would be. But I mean, he he still got some name brand to him, and he could. I'm telling you, man, he's he's still got it. Yeah, but you you mentioned that nice sweep that he did. He I actually have a a picture of it right here for the for the viewers right oh, now, right beautiful. there. Let me get the that out right there. But he just came up like he literally came up and he just did it really quickly. He was like, boom, got in there. He caught Brown by surprise. The Brown didn't expect it, and he just sweeped him down. And got him out, and then he got he got on top. Like 
it, it was so nice because it was so fluid how he did it. it he, he didn't even run up. It was kind of like a he kind of did like this power walk into it, like boom, and then he pulled and it he out of nowhere. Coming. He never saw, never it, saw coming. it coming. But the, like I agree with you. Like I don't know what Brown was thinking. Like I personally had it twenty nine to twenty eight because the first round I gave it to Brown because he did control the first round with the takedown, and then he had him on the ground. But like you said, he did that in rounds two and three, kind of too. But when he did it, he was like tired. He would take he had him down. He didn't do anything, and then Condorit got out a couple times. And, and switched and guard. He switched guard, or he was just constantly punching him from the back. He, he, he had more strikes by a lot, uh, and yeah. that's why the the judges gave it to him because he was the one kind of dictating the fight, even on on his back. Because the third round, all the third round, Brown was done. He took him down. Yeah, he was, he he was, was done. He was, he was spelled. There was nothing left in the tank. He basically was conceding just with taking him down and hopefully hooning him and getting that win. But you can't do that anymore. It, in the old UFC, like a five, three, four years ago, you could you do could that. lay and pray. Yeah, yeah you could lay, lay and pray, pray like, like a it. John Fitch style. Like he would just lay on top of you and get the round when they value takedowns more. But now it's more balanced. So it like fighters don't have to worry about that. The wrestlers aren't as they say, OP now, because yeah. you can get a takedown, but if a guy outstrikes you or outpunches you, they kind of weigh it the same way uh, to value all the different uh, fight styles. But well, you know, a lot of people were disappointed that I talked to after the fight because they were expecting, you know, everybody was expecting fireworks. Both of these guys can really bang in there. But I tell you, on both sides, I mean, Matt Brown didn't look bad in the first. I mean, he's always had kind of a, a strong wrestling game. Yeah. But yeah. I the thought that Carlos goes in with the game plan. He goes in with the game plan and he sticks to it. You look at the Nick Diaz thing. Nick Diaz complained that he kept running. He kept running because he would hit him, circle around, kind of like how Dominic Reyes was with John Jones. He would yeah. hit him, circle him around, hit him on the sides not let Nick Diaz be in front of him to get the open shots because Nick Diaz is great with his boxing and then and his and he has the the endurance and he just hit him. And the, even like in boxing you got Floyd Mayweather. That's what he does. You don't give your opponent the chance to hit you the way he wants to hit you. And that's what Carlos Condit does. He comes up with a game plan and he goes with it. Like it kind of fell away a couple of years ago, but now it seems like he's back on track. He's getting back into the top 10, his, his form of old where it like he can do what he needs to do. And I think his ground game has improved uh, tremendously since then. Like he can get on the back, but he can, he can get out of it. Now he can fight on his back. He can do what he needs to do to continue to gain points. And um, I'm excited to see who he fights next. But I got to tell you, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, you're good. You're I actually on. interviewed him uh, before the fight. Yeah. Uh, you can actually check that out on my articles, Devil's Advocate. It's a Carlos Condit interview before the fight. And he had told me, and I don't think it made the interview. You got to forgive me. I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not really a pro like you guys when it comes to technology. 
But uh, he had told me one fight he was interested in is Nate Diaz. He would like to fight Nate at welterweight. He's already fought Nick. He said Nate really intrigued him. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I don't think Nate will make it back to welterweight, but well, I think I, he, that would I be think a really entertaining is, fight. I think he is welterweight anyway because that's what he fought at. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought he was lightweight. No, he's welterweight because that's what him and Conor McGregor fought. And then you got to remember when Nate fought. Uh, Masvidal. Masvidal. They did that at welterweight. So he has done a couple of like uh, lightweight fights, but he's done a lot of his uh, fights lately at welterweight. So I could see that. You could see that fight. And then Dana White did say that he he was booking Nate Diaz, but he wasn't going to announce it yet. Gaethje is what I'm I'm hearing. Gaethje. That's what I'm reading all over Google is Gaethje. Oh, but then, but then again, I've heard Gagey against Olivier. I've heard I've that. Heard that too. I've heard that too because you, you, you got to know that Olivier is warranting a top three fight now with how he well he beat up. Oh, uh, broke my heart. And, <laughs> oh, broke my heart. And then let's not forget, like I said before, Habib has said that he thought that Olivier looked very good in his fight, and he he's impressed with him. So well, that would be a fight. What maybe what would Khabib do if he got Charles Oliveira on the ground? I don't think he could. I mean, that dude's a Brazilian. He showed me something with his Brazilian jiu-jitsu game yep. that I didn't know he was capable of handling Tony like that. So yep. that'd be a good fight. Yep. But to go from that, uh, fight, actually, I like it. here's Thanks, the thing. Bro. Yeah, here's the thing. When you watch Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys or even grapplers at that high of a level, you're like, oh, man, this is going to be amazing. Like when you look on YouTube and you look up like, uh, you know, Henner Gracie goes up against one of the Machida guys. You're like, holy shit, this is going to be crazy. And then you watch it, you're like, ah, oh, dude, this is super boring. They're just like front guard, oh, some side control, and then they stall if you out. Enjoy, they, if you enjoy like, like <laughs> grappling, though, that would be a great match. If you like enjoy the, very the technical, fans. but like very minute grappling, yeah, absolutely, because they're not going to make these like big things that we're like, oh, he made a mistake, I can do this cool sweep now. No, it's probably going to be like a very low-key, like most fans, you'll probably hear like the booing, they're like, no, punch each other. <laughs> like, but I think it would be, it wouldn't be an eventful fight, but it would be interesting to see the 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 sambo and the Brazilian jiu-jitsu kind of clash because they're wow. stylistically a little bit different. But because like sambo is a little bit more wrestling, heavy pressure top game, whereas jiu-jitsu is more like, especially with Oliveira, work from your back, try to slip in those submissions when you can. So I'd be interested to see which of those win out in the end. But it wouldn't be like it wouldn't be like the uh, uh, fireworks. <laughs> Yeah, it would be the it would be like uh, Dan Hooker and and uh, Poirier. It wouldn't yeah. be like that fight. <laughs> like, it would be a lot more boring, but it'd be cool though. Yeah, but to go from uh, that co-main event to the main event of the night, which was great, we had Max Holloway who de- demolished Calvin Cater. Sh- should he move up, or does he have unfinished business? Uh, before I get your guys' opinion, I just want to go to uh, another picture that I had of the fight we had right here. And let me move this out. But in this fight, we saw 744 most significant strikes attempted in a fight. We also saw 445 most big strikes landed. Then 274 most big head strikes in a fight. And then last but not least, 117 most big 
body strikes in a fight, which mainly was from blessed Max Holloway, who was just a man possessed in this fight. He just he came in, dominated, and then left. And then he did a lot of trash talking in between, which was the best part. I loved oh, yeah. it. What did you think of it, Sam? Max Holloway was what I was on what I like to call God mode on that Saturday <laughs> night fight. He came in. He was quiet all through uh, fight week. He didn't really say a lot. And when he came in, a lot of people were betting on Calvin Cater to come in and be the one to dethrone, you know, Holloway's greatness. I mean, Cater's a he's a beast. I mean, they don't call him the Boston finisher for nothing. He's got power. Max Holloway's pure volume and output completely shut him out from round one on out. Cater landed a few good shots here and there, but the volume, like I said, the fluidity, his movement, and, I mean, footwork, his footwork. I thought he looked good when he fought Brian Ortega. He made that look like a prelim fight. That If that Max, Max Holloway shows up to fight, you know, a lot of people are saying Volkanovski is – still going to be the champ, but he's still got to get through uh, uh, Brian Ortega. But whoever fights Max Holloway next and that Max Holloway shows up, he's going to blister him, man. It's going to be scorched earth for somebody. He came in there with a game plan. And the the main thing, no sparring in his camp. He yep. did no sparring whatsoever. Came in there and looked like he looked fresh, man. Everything looked good talking trash to the commentators in the fifth round while he was putting on a show. Uh, hats off to Cater. He took a, a tremendous beating. It probably should have been stopped in the fourth round, honestly. because Round three. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was taking a beating. But he still hung in there and showed the kids tougher than a Waffle House steak, man. He's he's uh, he's he's legit. You know, let him get some some – seniority a little few miles under his belt and he'll come back to fight another day but as far as max holloway moving up and wait i think he needs to stay exactly where he's at he doesn't bring his power with him he, he when he fought poirier when he did move up he didn't look like the max that i knew at featherweight so i i think and i definitely don't think he wants any of the khabib smoke man uh, that's a bad matchup for him. I think he wants uh, it, and I think that he could take it. Ooh, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Khabib, uh, you know, Khabib's fault strikers. Khabib's fault guys that can move like Holloway, and you know, he shuts them down. But Holloway, he needs to stay right where he's at. He'll get that belt back. I thought he won the the second Volkanovski fight. To be honest with you, so did you see what Volkanovski said yesterday? No. He said that uh, if uh, Max Holloway thinks that he could do that to him, he has another thing coming for him. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, there is a big difference between Volkanovski and Cater. Don't get me wrong, but if that Max Holloway shows up to fight anybody, he's taking on the belt. I mean, he. <laughs> I don't care who you are. He was just on a whole nother level Saturday night. He was untouchable only reason he got touched is because he got sloppy you know showing off or wanting to slug for the you know slug it out for the fans if he wanted to he would have been untouched that night he looked so good i thought i thought the fight could have had like a different outcome not like 
saying he would have lost, but I think Cater made one big mistake, and they kept mentioning it during the fight. He kept let, letting Max Holloway dictate the first strike instead of hitting him first. And but yeah. and then whenever Cater actually hit him first, he stopped him from getting those combinations that he kept on re- rearing off like they're just uh, no other. Like he kept getting those strikes, but when Cater would hit him first with like a uppercut or just a jab, he caught him it and worked. then he stunned him yeah. and he stunned him for a second. But then he wouldn't continue to do it. He he would let he would just go back to the normal. I'm gonna let Max Holloway dictate hit me and then I'm going to try and counter him back. If he would have went with that strategy of I'm going to make sure that I hit him first, he probably would have had a better outcome and it might have been he might have lost, but it would have been like a 3 to 2 type uh, 3 rounds. He, he was waiting three. he was waiting to counter pretty much. Yeah. He, he was waiting he to counter. Been the, he should have been their first because when if you looked at his past two fights, uh he only like that's been a bad thing with them. Even with the Zabib one uh, that he did, that he could have won that. He he always starts out slow, and then uh, and then by round two or three, he then hulks up, and then he starts going on a melee mission, and then he winds up either winning or like in the Zabib one, he lost it by one round because he started out slow in round one, which would have made the difference for him, but. In all those fights, he was hitting first. He, he was being the aggressor. He wasn't waiting. He was attacking first. And then it was having a great effect on him. And that's why he got to this point where he got this fight against Max Holloway. And then for some reason, he changes his game plan for it. I don't know why he did it, but he he, he decided to do it. I, I'm surprised no one asked him why he did it. Uh, in, in a post-fight interview. I don't know if they did or not, but I didn't hear anything about it. But I'm just surprised that he was able to take all those uh, punches and punishment and then keep going. Like I'm like, at one point, he's going like this, looking like it was like a yeah. Mortal Kombat with a fatality. It, it, I was it, waiting it for him been to fall stopped. down. And then uh, kudos to Herb Dean for keeping it going because he got back up and then he punched. he was punching him while he was... Uh, or, or groggy. Wobble, I'm, I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'm like, damn. If if he can punch this wobbly, why can't he punch better when he's up upright and uh, sane? Because he was punching better that way when he was half half out of it. And I'm just Holloway like, took him completely out of his game with the volume. Yep. yep. And then and then you got uh, like I could see guys uh, that can Capella like like you said Volkanovski. The difference between Cater and Volkanovski is Volkanovski, uh, later in the second Howie fight, was able to control the fight because he would he started to take him down with the ground game, and then he controlled him for the last couple fights. I, I mean fights the last couple rounds. You like you can say. Volkanovski won it or Ale won it. Either way, like it was kind of a close one when he thought about it because he kept on taking him down. And then in the first couple of rounds, it was all Holloway. But then starting round three, that's the one that was either way. And then from that point on, I had it as Volkanovski with the ground game because he, he just controlled. He tired uh, Holloway a little bit. He had an answer for the shots because he, he made sure that the fight wasn't upright, whereas Cater didn't do that. 
you you were expecting him to do it. He took two, three chances, and then he just abandoned it. It just didn't work because he doesn't have the ground wrestling game as Volkanovski does. And then the reason I think Holloway is going to gun for Habib now is it also came out that Volkanovski is eyeing a fight with McGregor. He wants McGregor, and he basically called him out. <laughs> on Twitter uh, yesterday. And you got all these uh, call-outs and all these potential fights uh, with like McGregor, Habib, Volkanovski, Holloway. I'm like, I'm all for it. Like, you got this featherweight going against this uh, lightweight and vice versa between two different uh, uh, groups. Like, imagine that. Imagine having Holloway and Habib and then McGregor and Volkanovski. It, one fighter from each weight class, uh, and then have yeah. that happen, and then and then what you could do is have the winners face each other. And yeah, you, you you make a lot of money from that. So that's how I feel about this. Uh, were you able to catch this, uh, Miles, or catch any highlights of this? No, not particularly, but actually it's interesting that you kind of frame that what you said there just a second ago in that particular way where there's like all these guys from different weight classes who want to fight each other and like, oh, these could be pretty good fights, you know? Um, When I was doing my, uh, it was not this week or not, sorry, not last week, but the week before I did a, a podcast episode and in one of my segments, I talked about specifically trans rights and, and having uh, trans people compete in sports because that's kind yeah. of a big hot button issue. And I specifically talked about like combat sports like the UFC. And what I was saying is like, well, now that we have more of an understanding of how like gender identity works and stuff like that, and there are these athletes who deserve to be able to participate if they put in the work and they do the time, they're just as valid as everybody else. And so what's probably going to end up happening at some point in the future is that we're going to have to redefine how we look at things like divisions and weight classes. Cause over time, well, traditionally we've only really divided fighters into categories based on two factors, right? Yeah. Uh, their gender and their their weight and that's it and as a result sometimes we get these like crazy mismatches within a division like like john jones being like a giant with this ridiculous reach and strength and everybody's like what can i do against that <laughs> like why do i have to fight this guy and, and it's and it seems like a lot more it would be more interesting if we had more factors for how we classified fighters right like if we didn't just take uh, gender and weight into account if we took into account like uh, body structure we took into account build we took into account muscle mass uh, we can even take into account because because conservatives cry about um, how much testosterone is in someone's system we can we can do a test for that now and I think it would kind of lead to a point where we'd be able to see a lot of these fights because if we start to redefine how we stratify fighters what we would be looking at is more, I guess more equal matchups, which would be more interesting to watch. Like we could have these sort of this breakdown of traditional weight classes and go, well, why can't that guy fight this guy? That'd be a cool fight. Let's see that. Like, hell yeah. It's like in Japan, they have the, uh, um, what's it called? The, the all, all Japan national it's for uh, judo. And it's basically a, a big judo brawl, no weight classes. Everybody's just, everybody goes in, regardless of, of how heavy or how light you are, how strong you are, you're all competing on the same level. 
And there was a guy in there, very famous judoka. I forget his, his name. I'm not good with Japanese names. I think his name was Tanaka. But within his weight division, he just like dominated. But he ended up losing to a guy just because he was a monster. Like he was just really big and he couldn't do anything. So, yeah, I think I think it'd be interesting to see these fights. And hopefully going forward, we can start to kind of address more lots of issues with with one basic solution right like we can start looking at well we want to see these interesting fights with these interesting fighters that otherwise wouldn't be able to happen with the current uh you know weight class system and then we can also start integrating uh you know trans people into combat sports and just into sports in general it's kind of ridiculous that we're even having this discussion in 2021 and being like well i don't know do they really deserve to play sports though (laughs) like but uh, no, I think that'd be cool. Just uh, yeah, kind of a funny, funny how things lined up on that. Yep. And then for the people that are just tuning in, just to recap, we just talked about uh, Habib, and then the decision that that wasn't made yet on Saturday, and then we also talked about the Carlos Condit fight and where he goes from here, and then we just talked about Max Holloway, and then. Same thing where, where he goes and then how well he looked on Saturday with all the boxing that he did, trash talking, and it, he's definitely in line for a, a, some sort of title shot, whether it's against Volkanovski Ortega winner or against Habib. But before we go into the predictions part of the show, uh, here's our social media video. We are The Buzz. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter under WTBDOTCOM, which is WTB.com. And then you can also find us on Instagram. Subscribe to our pages. Show some love. Give give our... all of our articles and live podcast uh, comments and don't hesitate because we won't hesitate to comment back. And then if you have any comments on any of the stuff that we're talking on right now, put a comment in the, in the comment section and then we'll bring it out and then we'll talk about it. But uh, getting started with the, the predictions part, we're going to do just one fight from Wednesday, which is the main event which is Michael Chiesa against Neo Magni at the welterweight division. Kind of a, a light, lackluster card on Wednesday due to a couple uh, like fights on the card being pulled because of injury or COVID. But this one is really good, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, what are your predictions for this fight? Uh, I'll start with you, Miles. So this one's kind of interesting because if you look at the stats and that's the only thing you use to judge this fight, the stats kind of lead you to the most probable outcomes, but they, they kind of inform it in a different way. Like if you looked at the stats and you made conclusions, you'd probably be coming to the wrong conclusions on 
how the fight would go rather than the results, right? Yes. So based on the on the stats, it looks like uh, we would expect to see uh, a KO from uh, Magni if that's how that fight went. If there was a submission victory, it'd be uh, Chesia. A Chesia? Chesia? I think I'm Chiesa. saying that. Right. Chiesa. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, wow. I was not saying that right. <laughs> not, I'm not good with names. Um, and if it went to decision, we'd expect to see Magni. Um, because it looks like Magni has all like the striking advantages. He lands like two more strikes per minute. He's got an 8% higher significant strike rate. And uh, I think it's like 5% uh, better striking defense overall. And then Chesia has like 1.3 more takedowns on average, uh, 7% better takedown accuracy and 10% better takedown defense. And he's, he's got like at least 1.2 more submissions on average. So that's a big one. Um, and then of course, uh, Magni has, has a lot more decision victories. I think it's like 23% more of his wins go by decision. Um, now, be, even though Magni doesn't have very many submission victories, he's actually a pretty high level grappler. Like when I was watching and, and kind of looking back through some of his fights to get an idea of, of how he, how he does things. Uh, he spends a lot of time wrestling, a lot of time going to the ground, not, not really working on the ground so much. He's got a very, uh, heavy, pressure top game so he can do some ground and pound stuff and just kind of put you in inconvenient positions uh but he's actually a brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt but we just we don't see it that often that's the thing um so it'd be interesting to see how this would go if he went up against uh chesia who on paper is actually supposed to be worse he's he's only a brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt and yet Chesia finishes more regularly, like 65% of his wins are by submission. So I think it'd be interesting to see these two fight just because this is probably going to be mostly a grappling match, like, like wrestling and then some groundwork. Uh, I don't think we're going to see a lot of striking here, mostly because one Magni, he can strike. He's not a big power striker though. He doesn't have a lot of stopping power. Like he's not like a John Jones or a Poirier or a, a Gaethje, you know, you see guys, you see guys take Magni's strikes and they just kind of eat them and keep going, you know, now over time, those add up, but it's not like any one hit is going to be like, oh man, <laughs> like they're not seeing stars from his, from his crosses necessarily, maybe like the 20th cross. Yeah. But not like the first couple. So I think what's going to end up happening is, is, Magni's gonna, you know, do his best to keep uh, Chesia in in striking range, but Chesia's main move is like, I'm gonna kind of use ornamental striking to get close enough to wrestle. Like that's really where he wants to be. He's not, he's not really a striker. He just kind of goes, uh, uh, and then he, since his hands are right, he's like, oh, I got you now, and then he goes to his to his wrestling. So I think we're gonna see quite a bit of wrestling, a lot of pinning against the cage, a lot of reverses, a lot of throws. Now, what'll be interesting is the ground game because we're going to get to see Magni's sort of underrated Brazilian jiu-jitsu ability. So I'm interested to see if he's going to go for these submission attempts because he usually doesn't. He usually you know, does top, top position stuff, some ground and pound stuff. Uh, he doesn't do a whole lot of like, oh, I'm going to you know, try this. Oh, you gave me an opportunity to take your back. I'm going to go for the rear naked. Like he doesn't do that very often. Uh, but that's exactly what Chessia does. He's very fluid. As soon as he gets a position and he's like, all right, I'm going to try this submission. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to try this submission. Oh, you did a thing. I'm going to go to side control. How do he do that? He just, he did it and he's there. And most of the time the fighter's like, what just happened? He's like, a, he's like a spider monkey sometimes. So 
overall, I think the most likely scenario is that, again, this is going to be kind of a long grappling match between standing up against the cage and going to the floor. There's a pretty decent chance I think they both end up going the distance uh, because I think Magny's going to be able to, for the most part, handle himself on the ground. So a lot of Chessia's uh, uh, submission attempts may not be successful. So they might kind of be able to stalemate each other out there. Um, however, if Magni is able to keep him in striking range just enough to kind of inhibit Chessia's movements, uh, then I think we're going to see probably a lot of like top position ground and pound stuff that could result in uh, a KO for Magni. Um, but if it doesn't, cause again, he doesn't have that, that big stopping power. It could just be, he's scoring points. So at the end of the day, if this ends up going the distance and nobody's knocked out, I'd see a Magni victory by decision. Um, now if Chessy is like really on his game, the whole fight and he's taken advantage of every opportunity. I think there's a possibility here he could win by submission. I think it's small, though. I don't think it's a big a big potential for him. Um, and then, of course, potential ground-and-pound knockout for, for Magny if he just gets enough opportunities to just kind of pound him with those hammer fists. But, uh, I mean, which is exactly what, what the statistics would lead you to believe. It's just a kind of a different result than what you would assume. Uh, what about you, Sam? I think it's actually going to be a good fight. Uh, I think it's going to be – I think they're going to throw leather. Uh, ever since Kies has moved up to welterweight, he's a different fighter completely. Uh, he looks good. His last fight, his last win was against a, a tough uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, and which, you know, Dos Anjos wasn't the same at welterweight as, as he is at lightweight, but at the same time – uh, Chiesa looked good. He shows a lot of improvement. Magni is just a tough, gritty fighter. Yeah, I mean, he's been in there and toughed it out with some of the hardest punchers in the division. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Magni by knockout, though. That's what I'm predicting. Yeah, th this was tough for me because I, I've watched uh, Chiesa ever since he was on Ultimate Fighter. Uh, a lot of people forget he was on the show, and then he, he did very well. Of course, but um, they they have like I would say they have similar type styles, but they go about it a different way. If that makes sense, because uh, you look at Magni, he looks like this lanky guy, and you think he'd use it to his advantage, getting the guy on his back, and then just use that to his advantage. But he doesn't really do that. He, he does. I feel like he does everything a little bit well. But he doesn't dominate in any way. Whereas Chiesa is really good with the the wrestling game. I, I feel like he tries to use that. He tries to wear his uh, opponent out. But I've seen Magni knock a couple guys out, and then he has that power. He just doesn't do it a lot. But I think this is a fight that'll work well on it, and I could see him uh, like getting a knockout in say the second round. But it all depends on how he defends the 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 takedowns of Chiesa because Chiesa will do that and he'll, he'll try and do that several times to get the game, uh, the fight on the ground and the control everything and then do the ground and pound. But I feel like he's going to get caught. He's, he's usually prone to that at times. They both are, but I, I think Magni's more the advantage of taking advantage of a mistake of his opponent than Chiesa is. And I got, I got this as a second round uh, knockout for uh, Neil Magny, and then he moves on uh, and gets a better fight out of it. 
But uh, to move from that fight to uh, Saturday's UFC uh, 257 uh, pay-per-view, and now we're going to do the predictions for that. And the first fight that we have on here, the opening fight is a women's strawweight division matchup between Marina Rodriguez and Amanda Ribas. Uh, what was your take from this fight, Sam? Well, a lot of people are don't really know Marina Rodriguez. Uh, I've followed her since the contender. Uh, she's a well-rounded striker. She's beaten some pretty good fighters in there. I got a, a Randa Marcos being one of them, uh, Tisha Torres, uh, Jessica Aguilar. But uh, she also had uh, the fight with uh, Cynthia Cal- uh, Calvillo. I remember that fight. It was a, a really good fight, and it turned out to be a draw. So she's got a draw on her record, but she's she's a tough a tough contender. But I just think Amanda Hebos is on the she's on a hot streak right now. Uh, she's got really uh she, actually let me let, she's replacing somebody. No, uh, Marina Rodriguez is replacing Michelle Waterson. This was supposed mm-hmm. to be Michelle Waterson fighting. But uh, I think uh, I think either way, Hebos takes it. She's uh, she's a well-rounded competitor, and she's moving up quick. Yep. What about you, Miles? I think this one's pretty open and shut. I mean, you know, Marina Rodriguez. She's not bad. She's just not better than than Amanda Rebus. That's that's all it is. <laughs> like like on paper, she's got some Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt. Rebus is uh, both Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo Black Belt, as well as is being trained by her father in Muay Thai since she was a little girl. Like on paper, it's pretty clear who's got the advantage in terms of training. And then when you actually watch them in the ring, it, it becomes more apparent, right? Uh, Rodriguez, she moves well and she's got a good sense of timing, but she takes time to build up steam. She's a second round fighter. She doesn't really come out swinging. She doesn't come out doing anything all that impressive in the first round. She's, she's, you know, building up her momentum. Um, and, and she's got a lot of striking power for her size and in her division, but it comes at a cost. She tends to, for these big hits, she, she overswings and overall her striking is less technically proficient, but the trade-off is it's more powerful because in striking, Technical proficiency basically means it's a balance between offense and defense at any given moment, but striking without technical proficiency isn't wrong. You can do it. You just have to be better at other things. And I'll talk about that. We got another fight coming up where I want to, uh, want to expand on this, but basically you can be sloppy. And if you hit people real hard and it works, like that, it works. You did the thing. Yeah. So so that's basically what her striking looks like. But the, the, the problem is it creates a lot of openings in her guard. And of course, Rebus being the more technical striker is going to go, oh, good. I got lots of places to hit you now. So she's got good kicks. Uh, her legs give her a lot of reach. So I think her striking game is going to have to revolve around that a lot. I don't think it's going to help a lot. But if I was her coach, I'd be telling her to do a lot of Muay Thai kicks. I'd be kick her in the kick her in the ribs, kick her in the stomach, keep her off of you, try to problem solve. Don't go to the ground. Do not grapple with, with three of us. That will not go well. Um, what else I got here? So she builds up steam, second round fighter. Um, but as she sees more openings, she gets more aggressive. But again, when she gets more aggressive, it creates more openings in her guard. So she's going to have to be real careful with that exchange of like, oh, I want to hit her. 
but then at the same time, she might be walking straight into like a nasty cross or a nasty hook, and that might be it for her. Um, now, what's interesting is her striking is more evenly distributed across the body. Like she kind of peppers the head, the torso, she goes for the legs, uh, whereas Rebus is a little bit more head, stomach area, and doesn't, doesn't do too much on the legs. Um, she's a good wrestler. She's got good clench defense. She's, she can defend takedowns. Um, she's, she's clearly more comfortable standing than she is on the ground. Obviously she's not a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. So like all the things she's not great at Rebus is good at, right? She's very comfortable on the ground. She's fine going down there and submitting you. No problem. Uh, she's very strong. So I think like pound for pound, that's going to be a problem when it comes to wrestling stuff. Cause she's more technically proficient with her judo black belt, but she can also kind of just force her to do things cause she's stronger. So uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much I see this as uh, Rebus wins by submission in first or second round easily because, I mean, I think most of her wins tend to come from submission. But uh, that's that tends to be where she's most comfortable and where she slips in those things you don't see coming. So I think I think uh, uh, pff, Rodriguez is going gonna, is gonna to make a mistake and it's going to be something where she's on a top position and she's trying to maybe do a ground and pound, maybe just trying to hold position to the end of the round. And the rebus is going to slip in an arm bar and just end it right there. I think that's exactly what happened with, uh, with the last fight she was in. I can't remember. Page I can't say the name. That's the one. I don't page, know how to pronounce uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. She did not see that coming. And she's like, what arm bar? What? So I think it's going to be a similar story. Yep, and for me, like you guys said, you got Marinish Muay Thai and striking background, and then Rebus has like a grappling Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. Uh, watching that fight with Rebus and uh, Paige Van Zant, Granite Van Zant was kind of her head wasn't in it. I think she what she's doing now is she's putting more focus into a fight. But Rebus took took that fight, even though I think. In the long run, Paige Van Zandt's going to be a very well-rounded fighter. Uh, Rebus is just she's the up-and-comer right now. Just she does a lot of things well. Uh, the big plus for Marina is she is the better, as you say, as we say, striker. She's better uh, at striking. So if the if this is a stand-up game, it it advantages goes in her way. But as you said. Rebus isn't that far off with her striking. She's been improving fight by fight with it. She, she she can hold her own with that. But the big difference here is the grappling, and that to me, Rebus is heads and toes ahead of Maria with that. She can control the fight with with that. Go with the takedowns and the the ground and pound with that, or just with the submissions, like you said. I see this going. And to me, this is a first round fight. And I, I feel like Rebus is going to knock her out. That's how I feel like she did it to uh, Van Sant. She caught, she caught her on the ground. I think she's going to take her down and then just catch her on the ground because Maria is going to try and stand up. And I feel like she's going to catch her. It's either that. The other option I see is a round two submission. She's going to tire her out on the ground 
and she's going to force Marina into a position that she doesn't want to be in. She's going to move around, try and get out, and then that's when Rebus is going to uh, con control it and then get her with the rear naked choke. That, so either a round one knockout or a round two rear naked choke uh, submission by uh, Rebus. But all in all, I, I have big uh, aspirations for the, her future, and I feel like she, she's, she is going to be a champion to me as she's going to be a player in the division in the near future, more so in the next year or so. And then that's what I think about that. And then moving on to the next one, we got a lightweight division matchup between Matt Fravola and Otman Azatar. Uh, what do you think about this, uh, Miles? Uh, this one I feel is, is kind of on a similar vein in terms of like, it's, it's pretty open and closed for me. So you got Matt Frivola, he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in, in some kickboxing, and he's got a lot of natural power in his striking, but he, he's not good at it. <laughs> like, like from a technical standpoint, he can hit real hard, um, and he's got a lot of forward pressure in his game, but when you watch him strike, you're like, he's not a striker. He's a grappler learning to strike, right? And that's how he's always kind of been, and it seems like his, his striking game has been it's improving. It's just improving at a very slow rate. So he, he cannot stand in trade with, with uh, Al, Al, Al Zatir, I think it's Al Zatar. He can't stand yeah. in trade with that guy. He, uh, I think the, the biggest difference there is the fact that he, uh, Al Zatar is a two or three time Muay Thai world champion. You learning to strike and getting progressively better does not qualify you to fight a two or three time Muay Thai world champion. It's just not going to go well for you. And unfortunately, uh, Frivola is the guy, he does like to stand and trade. That is the thing he, he thinks he's good at. He's like, ah, because I can hit real hard. So I think, he, he's, I think he assumes his natural power will take him further than it can, especially up against a guy like, like Al-Zatir, or Al-Zatar, my bad. Um, I think another issue for Frivola might be uh, gassing out, um, especially I think when he gets like hit real hard and he gets hurt. Uh, you see his his game change like immediately. It's it's very very noticeable right away. Um, now he does have a good chin on him. He is, he can absorb punches pretty well, but there is a limit to that. I think because once he once he takes enough damage, he just tries to do some wrestling and oh I'm going to take him to the ground because really that's where he should be. He's he's most of his background again. He's Brazilian Jiu Jitsu brown belt. That's that's where his strength is. It's not in his striking. Um, now he's good at, at snapping up dominant positions while he's on the ground. And, you know, that's where he's, all right, I'm going to keep these top positions and then hit these submissions whenever they present themselves. And what he's really good at is he doesn't overcommit to any one submission. A lot of guys, they'll burn themselves out trying to do this one submission. Like they really, really want it, but there's just something that's out of place and you're just burning your own energy, just trying to force it into place. He'll do one thing and go, oh, that's not working. And then he'll just flow over to the next thing. He'll do this three or four times until something sticks, and he's very good at that. Um, he bides his time uh, on the ground, like I said, and he, he just waits for the right opportunity. Now, Alzatir, uh, again, he's got some jujitsu. He's not nearly as, as strong of a grappler. So these are two ends of, of, you know, two opposite poles. On one end, you got a really good striker, but not a great grappler. You got a great grappler, but not a great striker. Um, with Alzatir or Alzatar, his, his 
power is is definitely there. He's he's a power striker, and what's interesting is he's pretty clean with it too, which means he's got a lot of natural strength behind that striking power. Um, let's see, he does sometimes overcommit and create holes in his guard, but I don't think that's really going to be an issue against uh, Fervola just because he doesn't have the technical know-how to really, really take advantage of that. It would just be more if he can get a general sense of timing and he gets real lucky, maybe he can find one of those openings. Uh, now, while Zatar doesn't have good grappling, I would say, or at least not as good of grappling, he does have good takedown defense. So that's, I think, going to be a, a, another sticking point here because even though he's not great on the ground, he is good at kind of keeping himself out of danger. If he hits the ground, he's pretty good at getting back to his feet. He doesn't st uh, spend too much time down there. He can problem solve if he really has to, but overall he's, his strength is just maintaining overall control of just you know striking interactions. If he goes to the ground, he's like, I'm not comfortable here, and he gets back to where he is comfortable. So overall, I see uh, a win by knockout by uh, Azatir. I can't say that guy's name. Every time I look Azatar. at him, I'm like, oh, Azatar. There it is. Jesus Christ. Uh, but I see it as like a first or second round knockout. Um, and I think Frivola has a possibility of winning by submission, but the issue is going to be taking down Azatar and, and keeping him there long enough to make that happen. And I think what's going to happen, he's going to get worn down by striking because he's, he's not going to be able to trade very effectively. And the opportunities he does get to get Azatar, got, uh, Azatar on the ground, <laughs> he's just going to lose it too quickly. He's not going to have the time he needs to work effectively and go, okay, let's try this submission. Oh, that didn't work. Let me move to the next one. I think it's going to hit the ground, get right back up. And he's like, oh, good. Back to the thing I'm not good at. So... Um, yeah, there's a, there's a small chance for a submission victory, but again, it's, it's pretty fleeting. He'd have to catch him at just the right moment. Um, and of course, if it goes to decision, I would say, uh, just based on the stats, if we look at, uh, Azatir, he did, he deals more significant strikes with like a 14% margin Provola absorbs. Uh, I think it's 4.2 more hits per minute on average. Um, but overall, uh, Frivola does have more decision victories. So I think just the, the factor of more effective punches more often, and this guy over here not good at defending those punches, he eats them a lot of the time, points to a KO. But at the end of the day, I think I think mm, experience does win out when it comes to defense or to uh, decision victories. Like when you rack them up, you kind of get a sense on how to do that. If you're like, okay, I can't knock this guy out or maybe I can't, you know, submit him like I want to, but I can stall him out all three rounds and just rack up the points. Um, whereas I think as a tar is, is going to be like, no, I got to knock him out. I got to knock him out. And that's where his mind's going to be at. I don't think he's going to be thinking about judges and scorecards and things like that. Whereas for Vola, if he's smart, he's going to be thinking, all right, probably not going to see a submission here. So I'm going to have to rely on the cards. If there's any chance of victory, victory for me here. Yep. Uh, what do you, uh, what are your predictions for the same? Uh, well, the UFC, you know, they made an investment in Ottman as He's only fought one other time in the UFC. I think that we need to keep that in mind. He's 10 and zero. I mean, 13 and zero with 10 KOs and, I mean, yeah, he's got really heavy hands, a uh, German guy, but he's going up against a vet. And, you know, Matt Favola has been here since 2014. He's a Saralongo fighter. 
Uh, he's got really good striking, or not really good striking, but he can throw. Uh, if you go back to his fight with Lando Venata, a name maybe you guys are familiar with, he went to war with Tony Ferguson and hung in there with Tony. Lando's a, just, he's a good fighter that never really got past mid-card. But uh, he's 8-1-1. One one. I'm going to go with Frivola on this. I'm going to go with experience. Uh, you know, only his second fight in the UFC under the big lights. Uh, you know, he had definitely has the potential to knock out Frivola, but I, I just uh, I think experience is going to get this one. He's going to get him on the ground. He's going to have his way with him. Yeah, this this was kind of a tougher one for me because, like you said, Zaytar, he to me he's a knockout artist. He, he has in the thirteen fights, I believe it is, he has twelve finishes, ten by knockout, and then I think the other two were by submission. So. He has that experience getting guys out before you get to the decision. Whereas, uh, Provola, a sneaky thing about him is he has a wrestling background. You wouldn't know it because he doesn't use it as he should. He kind of likes to stand up with the other guy, like uh, Miles said. It's kind of like a bad, bad omen for him. He like. He feels like he needs to stand up and then get, compete with the guy on, on the ground when he should be taking the fight to the ground because he has a wrestling background that he has really well. And I feel like for him to win this fight, because if he tries to just stand up and trade with the as as a tar, see it's hard. Win. It's hard, right? <laughs> It's a weird yeah. ass name. <laughs> he, if he's, it's gonna try to stand up with as as tar, he's gonna lose because of his uh, striking. He has very good striking, and when he hits you, it hurts. Like if like he, he packs a pound in his hand, but in, for him to win, he's gonna have to take him down. But when he does that, he usually. Uh, he tries to do that too much or he tries to put too much into a striking and he tires himself out. But like he has to change things up. He has to try and take him down in the beginning, control the fight on the ground, use the ground to his advantage. Because once you take Azatar to the ground, all of Azatar's advantages go away because he can't strike you on the ground. He can hit you, but he can't get that clear fist-to-face uh, action against him because he's on the ground trying to get back up because he doesn't want to be down there. Whereas Favola would benefit from being on the ground where he can move around, he can hit him from there and not worry about that knockout shot because he's already on the ground. I, I, I see this either as a first-round knockout by Azatar if he catches him uh, while he's trying to take him down or if or Favola tries to just stand up and trade shots with him, I see it as a first-round knockout. But I could also see this as a as a decision victory for Favola if he goes and uses the wrestling game, gets him down, and avoids the shots. I, I think it's still going to be close because I still think Azatar is going to be able to hit him. It's just whether or not Favola can go in with the right game plan or not. But for me... Personally, I think it's going to be a first-round knockout by Azar Atar. And it's trying to say that like five times, and it's like hard. Yep. <laughs> it's hard. But I, I feel like he's going to be going to come in and have the right game plan to stand up and strike. Whereas Frivola, 
might be hit or miss with his game plan. He might come in and be like, I'm going to take him down, but then he's going to be like, oh, I want to man up and stand up and strike with him because I don't want to take away from this fight. That's just what it seems like he is uh, because he floats around where he's at all the time. He needs to focus. He needs to take him down or he's going to get taken down. Either way, this fight's going to go to the ground. <laughs> Whether he gets put to the ground or he tries to take Azatar to the ground. So I, I have this as a first-round knockout for Otman. But uh, to move on to the third fight of the card, we got the women's flyweight division. And it's Jessica Ayer against Joanne Cattlewood. Uh, what are your uh, predictions, Sam? Oh, well, you got number seven and number eight. Joanne coming in ranked number eight. Jessica at number seven. Uh, Jessica, Jessica I has a real problem making weight. Her last fight with uh, Cynthia Calvillo, she missed weight, lost 30% of her purse. Uh, you know, she she's a decent striker. She, you know, she does a lot of dirty boxing. She throws decent kicks, good punches. Not a lot of knockouts on her record, though. I think it's only three. Uh she she's a good fighter, but I th- I love JoJo, man. I love Joanne Calderwood. It broke my heart the last loss to Jennifer Maya. She was set for the title shot, and she took the fight because she wanted to stay active, and she lost first round armbar. I think it was the first. Yeah, it was first round armbar. Uh, I'm gonna go with Joanne. Her Muay Thai. I mean, she's a her striking's on another level. Uh, she you know she was a Muay Thai fighter before she was ever in the UFC. She's good. She's got good striking. And uh, like Shevchenko showed us, you know, Jessica I is open to being struck. She she leaves herself open. Her offense leaves her open to be hit. So I'm going to go with JoJo on this one. Uh, she just, I just think she's another level over Jessica I. Jessica I is good. Like I said, at the dirty box. She's not much on the ground. She's not really – she's a dirty, gritty – grinding fighter but joanna calderwood's on her way back to that title shot you know she technically would have already had the title shot had she not took that shot and uh i think she's going to learn from the mistakes that she made against jennifer maya but she did make you know she just didn't like she she didn't look like she was in that fight you know i don't know if she was jet lag i don't know what she just she that wasn't the the usual joanne calderwood that we usually see but uh, I think you're going to see JoJo performing on a top-notch level, and I see JoJo getting this by knockout, maybe second round. Okay. What about you, Miles? You know, it's interesting when you look at their their career uh, wins. We basically have two primarily decision fighters. Like they do have a different flavor on how they fight, but the results are ultimately that the vast majority of both of their wins come by decision. Now, usually with decision fighters, that that typically means they have excellent control over the situation, right? Like regardless if we're talking about striking or, or you know, wrestling, that transition to the ground, dealing with the ground, they have good general control, but decision fighters generally don't have a very good uh, finishing potential. Like they're not the ones to throw the knockout punch or hit that submission, um, so this will be interesting because essentially we're going to have two fighters with similar strategies, slightly different flavor, but they're going to be both trying to, to enact the same game plan, basically. So we're going to see who's better at it. So on one end, 
I, I do agree that I think I think Jessica I is outclassed. She's I couldn't find any of her her actual rankings, but just based on the the gym that she fights out of, she trains Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, some Muay Thai or kickboxing, and some wrestling. And while I'm not sure of her personal rankings, the coaches out of her gym are amazing. You've got guys in there like multiple time world champions in their discipline. Guys have been in for like 40 years or something crazy like that. Like she's, she's got some very knowledgeable teachers at her disposal for sure. Um, now the other thing I think is interesting is she was taken off the card in October when she was supposed to fight, uh, Jessica Adirande. I think it's like, that sounds like Brazilian. Adron. Adron. Oh yeah. I wasn't going to get that. Adron. (laughs) There's no way. (laughs) But uh, I think that was due to, to injuries. So I'm wondering if that might still be an issue. It was October. So she should have had enough time to heal, but you know, some injuries, they persist. And sometimes it's not necessarily like you feel the pain, but you lose mobility, you move elastic or you lose elasticity in your muscles. You know, there could be any number of ways an, an injury can persist over the years and affect your game. So I'd be, I'd be interested to see if that does become a factor in this fight. Um, as far as her fighting style, she's, she's got good head movement, good overall movement. She kind of looks a little bit more like a boxer than a kickboxer, the way she kind of does the bobbing and the weaving. Um, she maintains the, the center ring control fairly well. That, that seems to be one of her calling cards. As soon as she comes out, she wants to be right in the middle of the ring and then everybody else has to just problem solve around her, which that's usually a decision victory fighter move. That's how you maintain control in the octagon is if you're in the center, you can just kind of turn and at no point are you going to be like trying to, to problem solve or you're running out of room or the cage is all of a sudden coming up on you. If you're in the center, you ha- you're in the driver's seat. Um, now, now here's where we got to look at the difference in striking. And I, I brought this up earlier, and this is where I expand on what I was saying about technical proficiency ha- is, is a balancing act between offense and defense at any given point in time. And these two fighters, I think, are, are a pretty good example of that. So when you look at Jessica I, she's got great hand speed, and she's got a decent amount of striking power. But the problem is it, it comes at the expense of her guard. As soon as those hands start moving, the guard like falls apart completely. Now, when you look at striking through the lens of is, is it technically proficient, what you're essentially looking for is whenever you throw a strike, it creates an opening. Because if you have two hands to defend punches, it's like, all right, this hand is in charge of this quadrant, both high and low. And this quadrant is defended by this hand, high and low. So if I have to strike, that means one of my quadrants is has nothing there. There are openings for me to be hit, both high and low, because I can't use my elbow, I can't parry, I can't do anything because my hand has already left the guard position. So a technically proficient striker, tech, what, we, you, what we mean by that usually means how good are you at maintaining this overall defense when one of those hands leaves the equation, right? Like, uh, is it like... When you throw a strike, does this hand drop? Now you've got basically just the bottom quadrant and the rest, the other three are just completely open for being struck. Or are you nice and tight? And can you, you know, potentially cover and make up for the fact that one of these hands is occupied? That's not something Jessica I is good at because as soon as she starts throwing, both hands enter the equation very quickly, and there's just there's openings everywhere. Um, especially when she uh, starts firing off rapid fire strikes it's basically just both hands out in front of her. So uh, as far as her grappling is concerned, 
She's got good problem solving skills. She's got good defensive skills on the ground. Uh, she hasn't shown a great deal of potential for finishing ability in terms of like submissions. Um, what else I got here? Oh, she has a good, that, that's a typo. It says good night. That's not, <laughs> there's no way that's what I meant to type there. <laughs> um, but when she has a good day in the ring, she's definitely a force to be reckoned with. Like when we look back at the Leslie Smith fight uh, versus the uh, Chu Kagan fight, the, it was like two different fighters between those those two fights. So if she comes in as Jessica I from the Leslie Smith fight, she's she's got some potential to win this thing. But if we're going to see the Leslie I from the Chu Kagan fight, that's no, I don't, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot out of that. Now, on the other hand, you got Calderwood definitely outclasses her in terms of credentials. She, she's got more. I think she's probably got more experience in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but she definitely has more experience in Muay Thai. She's, she had a decent career both in uh, Muay Thai and KB leagues before she ever got into the UFC. But her striking is is it's not like the most perfect striking ever, but it is more technically proficient. When three she throws a strike, she keeps her guard fairly well maintained. It's not like she throws both hands out there and it all kind of falls apart. But she also has the the Muay Thai striking power. And so I think that's going to that's going to show through in terms of when when Jessica I tries to throw these flurries of punches, she's going to be coming up against more resistance because the guard is more complete on on uh, Calderwood's side. And then when she has to receive those punches and kicks, they're going to be heavier just based on on, you know, the training she's had and the experience she's had. Um, but she has the same sort of forward pressure in her stand-up game and, and Calderwood also likes to maintain center position in the octagon. So it'll be interesting to see who kind of gets that position between the two of them since they'll probably be fighting over it. Um, as far as groundwork goes, uh, decent ability work from the ground. Again, not a whole lot of, of demonstration of finishing potential just because she doesn't have a lot of submission victories. I think she'd probably do it though. Um, Overall, I would say uh, decision could go either way because that's kind of the forte of both of these fighters. But statistically, uh, Calderwood lands more significant strikes more often uh, and has higher takedown average and takedown accuracy. So in terms of racking up points, those are kind of important categories. So I'd say the decision would go to Calderwood if it gets there, which is pretty, is pretty likely in this one. Uh, there's also a potential for knockout. I see Calderwood getting the knockout as well. If it goes that way, uh, I'd say it's less likely than, than the decision, but it's there. Um, she's going to have a harder time again. If, if we see the Jessica, I, who, who is in the Leslie Smith fight, then, then it's, it's a toss up, but I don't think that's who we're going to see. Um, and then of course, submission victory, I would say, uh, Jessica, I is more likely to get it. Uh, just based on what I've seen, she does try for submissions. The difference between her and Calderwood in terms of how they approach their ground game, Calderwood doesn't spend a lot of time making attempts at submissions. She more just problem solves and try to get gets, get herself out of bad situations and strikes from the ground uh, from her back or on top ground and pound, but she doesn't make a lot of attempts. And you can't submit someone if you don't even try. So just to, based on that, uh, if there's a submission, which there probably won't be, it would be Jessica I. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, uh, we got Jessica I. She specializes in wrestling and ground and pound. And then Catterwood specializes in boxing and stand-up. I think that for me, this is just 
pretty self-explanatory. It feels like this is the, except for the main event, this is kind of like the theme of the night. It's wrestling against uh, boxing or striking. I feel like Catterwood has the advantage with the striking by a lot. You you would think Jessica, I would want to take this to the ground, like you said, with the with how she is with her striking, and then when she strikes, she doesn't know how to roll with it, and then to uh, make sure that she's ready when she does it. I feel like just off the top of my head, Cattlewood by second round uh, knockout, or I think she she can dominate this fight with her striking and then win by decision. Uh, I feel like Jessica I is gonna get hit a few times and then her uh, just her defense mechanism is going to be to grab uh, Catterwood and try and take her down. She, she could do it here and there, but I feel like she's not going to get into her game because she's going to go too much into def- defense mode uh, by getting hit because she's going to want to stand up first and try and engage with Catterwood like she has done lately and it's not going to end well. And then she's going to just grab on and try and pull her down, do which she does well. She does good with that, but it's not going to work when you're fighting a striker. You're going to want to get them down before they hit you first because if you're not that well with striking, they're going to they're gonna have their way with you. They know how to work things standing up, whereas you know how to work things when you get down. And I think she's going to struggle with it, and I, I'm going to have – Catterwood uh, Catterwood by second round knockout, and then she's gonna move on. I, I feel like she's gonna be able to take this momentum, and because she's been on like a, I wouldn't say a downward spiral, but she's won I think one of the last two fights. Uh, she should have had a shot, and then she took a fight just because she didn't want to wait, which uh, which I hate because uh, like you get stuck in that uh, limbo of to wait for that title fight that that you are guaranteed or you, do you take a fight because you know you want to stay fresh because when you're on a good like a hot streak like like she was at the time you want to keep it but because she took a fight on short notice and then didn't really prepare as much as she usually does she lost and then it was kind of like just a downward spiral she didn't know how to recover from it and i feel like she can recover from it in this fight against jessica i but uh to move on to the co-main event which i know sam is excited for (laughs) we got the lightweight division we got dan hooker against newcomer michael chandler coming in from belter I'm going to start with you first, Miles, because I know Sam has quite a bit to say about this. I do too. So, <laughs> I, as I was doing the research for this one, I talked myself into, okay, I think I got a fair idea of who I'm voting for here. And as I talk myself through this, let's see if I arrive at the same conclusion, because the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, but wait a minute. <laughs> like, so so here's here's kind of where my head was at when I was doing the research. And let's see if I arrive at the same conclusion, because I might change my mind. This is a pretty this is a pretty close fight. There's, there's a lot here to unpack. Um, on one hand, you got you got Dan Hooker. 
He's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black or purple belt, sorry, not a black belt, uh, but he is a very seasoned kickboxer. He's a two-time KB champion. So, I mean, he's definitely knows what he's doing with his hands. Now, both fighters have good movement, a good sense of gauging, which of course comes with a lot of experience in striking. Um, they both have good forward pressure. They tend to keep whoever they're fighting kind of on their heels, pushing forward to, you know, really particularly with these two guys, they have a similar approach where they're able to close distance very quickly. They shoot in there right quick. One of the differences with what Hooker does, though, is that front hand. That front hand is a tool for him. He uh, uses it to essentially create openings. He'll throw little jabs here and there. He'll go, oh, okay, come up here, move your hands where I want them. And then once he sees like a good sort of setup, that's when he shoots in with that, with that rear hand and he starts throwing those crosses to the body and really inflicting some damage. Um, obviously he's got strong kicks and knees. Everybody's afraid of his knees. So yes, his lower body attacks are pretty, pretty significant. Um, and he has a good sense of timing in, on when to land those kicks, especially when we look at his clinch game, how he integrates knees into a clinch game. Very effective. Um, now the other thing I think is going to be a big issue here is he's got great impact resistance and hit recovery. We really saw that with the Dustin Poirier fight, uh, the way those guys were just slugging the crap out of each other. It was like, it was like watching Rocky and, and Ivan Drago just go back and forth for like 20 minutes. And then like Ivan Drago's in the corner and his coach is like, why haven't you knocked him out? He's like, this man, he's like a piece of iron. It's it's kind of like that. <laughs> Except I guess in that situation, uh, uh, Poirier was Rocky and, and Hooker was, was Ivan Drago, which, Hey, that's not a, that's not a terrible fighter to be compared against no. Ivan Drago. No, not at all. So, um, he has uh, oh he has uh, has such a long reach for his weight division. It basically forces fighters who are normally very technical in their striking, they have to overreach just to be able to reach him. Like he could just kind of put his arm out, and they're like, "Why? Well, I have to just like kind of leap in a little bit if I want to get to your head, if I want to get to your ribs, just because there's a big giant stilt arm in my way." Um, that's what we saw with the with the Poirier fight. Normally he's a lot more kind of close close in with his guard and he doesn't overextend too much but he had to he didn't really have a choice when he was fighting hooker just because of that arm reach was so significant um and going into this next fight he's also got the arm reach advantage he's got a four inch reach advantage on on um uh, michael chandler i can't believe i forgot the name that that was bad but <laughs> but he does have that same reach advantage in his favor um, sometimes he goes in before his hands are back into a good guarded position, especially when he uses that strategy of closing distance very quickly to, you know, start inflicting damage when he sees an opening, uh, that has a tendency to sometimes he gets caught with punches. He wasn't necessarily expecting, but he has good hit recovery. So it, it doesn't, you know, mess him up too much. He kind of just gets right back into what he was doing. Uh, you know, you got to hit him a lot of times to knock him out. So I'm not too worried about him like accidentally running into a knockout punch. I don't, that's not really in the cards in this one. Um, his wrestling and takedown defense are excellent. Um, it allows him to take good positioning, especially after he defends a takedown. So he's not so much a like, I'm going to take you down into guard position and work. He's more of like, uh, I'm going to let you try to take me down. I'm going to defend. And then I'm going to get good position based on just wherever we end up. And he might not even necessarily be going for, uh, you know, looking for those submissions. He might be just looking to 
where you out, where you out, take a break for a second, catch his breath, or even just throw those big heavy strikes when you can't go anywhere. You can't create the distance to to get away from him. Um, when he's on the ground, he's got great submission defense. Uh, he tends to maintain those those high pressure top positions, and again, just land those big heavy strikes when you when you can't do a whole lot to stop him. Um, and he doesn't spend, like I said, doesn't spend a whole lot of time looking for submissions. Um, but he is excellent at transitioning from guard to guard, which allows him to keep these top positions. Even when people are trying to transition out and defend, he just kind of stays on top of them. Now, I don't think that's necessarily going to be as easy for him in this one because Michael Chandler is an NAACP Division I wrestler with 100 career wins under his belt. So trying to dominate that guy and be like, no, nah, I'm going to hold you on the ground and not let you do stuff. That's not the guy who's going to be like, oh, man, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> like, that's all wrestling is. And he's pretty damn good at it. Um, he's got he's got some KB background and, and a little bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu in there, obviously. Uh, and, of course, he dominated Bellator, three-time lightweight heavy champion with, like, all of the records. Most submission victories, most wins in the light division history, most stoppage wins in Bellator history, uh, most title and title reigns in Bellator history. So he, he just, he did all the things. People were like, why are you winning so hard? Can you go to the UFC and just like leave some winning for the rest of us? So, so now he's here. Uh, in terms of his fighting, like I said, they, they have a very kind of similar, they have similar strengths in, in standup. Uh, they ha he can also do that kind of shooting in, closing distance really well. But he's got a bit of a, a different flavor for it. He doesn't use the front hand in the same way that Hooker does. His is a little bit more based on timing, right? So he'll he'll shoot in once he sees an opportunity for after like a, a bad jab or a failed cross or something. That, that's when he'll really kind of make you pay for it. Um, and people just don't even see it coming sometimes. Sometimes they'll just be kind of, you know, a couple of feet apart and they're like, all right, I'm going to, I'm making my game plan. And all of a sudden you just get hit in the face. You're like, oh shit, what, what happened? Because <laughs> he just shot in, hit you real quick and then got out. Um, so he's very quick on his feet. Um, in terms of reach, he's not going to enjoy the reach advantage he usually has. Like in his division in Bellator, he did tend to have the reach advantage in most of his fights. Some fights, it was a little bit more even, but he was kind of a big dude for his division in Bellator. That's not really true anymore since he's going up against uh, Dan Hooker. So I'm interested to see what it's going to look like when he doesn't have the advantage. He's on the receiving end of that, right? Um, he does have a tendency to put himself out of position when he goes for these heavy hits, but he has lightning fast recovery, excellent footwork. And he just moves right back into where he needs to be. Even if he throws something like crazy, I think he, I saw him do like a spinning back fist that missed. He just went right back into guard and the guy didn't even have time to like, Oh, I'm going to hit him up. Oh, nope. He's right back where he was a second ago. Um, he's a very technical power striker, um, but he does tend to get overwhelmed by big shots. Like if there's a big uh, roundhouse kick low, he'll particularly use like two hands to stop it, but you'll actually see it deplaces him. His, his whole positioning just kind of gets moved back versus Dan Hooker. Who's like a moose will just take the kick. He'll defend it, but it's not going to like move him anywhere. He's be like, Oh, that was cute. <laughs> like, so I think that's going to be a factor for him here. Um, Obviously, he's got uh, excellent wrestling, excellent takedown ability, excellent clinch control. Um, he's probably got a little bit lower impact resistance than Hooker, but probably about the same level of hit recovery. Um, and that's not saying Michael Chandler can't take a punch. He's got a chin on him. 
his groundwork blends really well with his wrestling. Um, and that's kind of the biggest difference. Well, the biggest difference between him and Hooker is that it looks more like Chandler actively looks for submission attempts while he's on the ground. So he has sort of this like very dominant presence when he has his ground game because of his wrestling. But the difference is he's not just there to ground and pound. He's actually looking for those opportunities to slip in those nasty secret or those, those slick submissions that they don't see coming. Um, also has great submission defense. Uh, now in terms of how this is going to go down, a KO or a TKO could go either way. But I would say Hooker has a slight advantage because, again, he has that he has that just a little bit more of impact resistance. So over the length of the fight, you've got Michael Chandler and Dan Hooker who can essentially put out the same amount of power. So they're hitting each other about as hard. But the guy who could take more of the punches and not be affected by it over the long term, I think he's just going to hold up better. Whereas Michael Chandler, he can take those punches. But I think it's going to add up. I think it's going to wear on him. So if there is potential for a knockout or a TKO, I think Michael Chandler would be the guy to wear out first. Um, submission, again, could go either way if there's a submission victory here. Uh, but Chandler, again, he actively looks for those submissions, whereas Hooker just kind of, if he finds one, he's like, oh, that's convenient. But Chandler's like looking to try to trip you up. He, he does a lot more work when it comes to submissions. So I would say just on that basis alone, um, also adding in his wrestling experience and the way he blends it with his jujitsu. I think it's more doable to see a, a Chandler submission victory if there's going to be one. And, uh, if this goes to decision, I would give it to Chandler just based on the stats. Now of those three potentials, knockout submission or decision, I would say the most likely one would probably be the knockout that I'm again, giving to Dan Hooker. Just because while these guys are both pretty good grapplers, uh, they do have a, a tendency to want to stand and trade. Like Michael Chandler, great wrestler, probably should use it more. <laughs> like he's not, he's a good striker. And I think he really like enjoys it. I think he likes standing and trading with dudes because he knows he's pretty good at it. But I don't think he's better than Dan Hooker. That's going to be the problem. So unless he, you know, takes that into account and says, look, I'm stronger when I'm grappling and when I'm doing my submission work. I don't think he's, he's got what it takes to, to break down Dan Hooker, the Ivan Drago guy. Right. So I think if that's his, if that's where his mind is at um, and he doesn't do the thing he needs to do, then yes, Dan Hooker would, would be the one to get the, the KO or, or the TKO. Um, and of course, if he doesn't, utilize the grappling enough that could also result in a decision victory if it goes the distance we got a uh, nicholas grahan chiming in i think chandler is starting the show's age honestly i mean he's getting up there isn't he he's a i mean he's not like old old but yeah like 36 yeah i mean most fighters are they like their peak is between 28 and like 32 i mean yeah, yeah. 36 you start to consider retiring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but with, with this, I got a hooker. He's a top kickbox. He has top kickboxing skills with the ability to set up combinations on the go. And then you got Chandler, world-class wrestler with well-rounded stand-up game. This this, this could, go, could go both ways, depending on where they go. I, I saw a lot in that uh, Poirier fight in a loss uh, than I saw in his past fights. 
uh, the way he can just set up his hit, hits, kind of like Max Holloway. He, he he's just in your face. He's going for the the contact. He goes high. He goes low. He goes in the middle. It doesn't matter. He uses his hands uh, with the striking, but then he's very good with the, his kicks. Like those kicks uh, were very uh, like a, a lethal weapon against uh, Dustin Poirier. Oh, yeah. Whereas Chandler, he's kind of like in the zone with his wrestle and like uh, in his losses, he's been hit because he didn't go with the wrestling game. But I thought in his last fight uh, against Benson Henderson, what he used to worry well was he would act like he's going for a, a takedown and then Benson Henderson would go to block it and then he would just hit him. He would just get him with the fakes or when he would go for a punch, he'd fake the punch and then go for a takedown. He'd get in his head to where he's going to make the, the his opponent think one thing and then he does another. Uh, and then when he stands up, he, he's not that bad standing up. He's not on the level of Dan Hooker with like combinations and his power, but he does he holds his own when he's standing up. He, he did knock out Benson Henderson. Granted, Benson Henderson's on the way down, but he's a similar fighter to uh, Dan Hooker where he uses those legs. He's, he stands up. He goes for the shots. But Michael Chandler has that uh, experience. Uh, granted, it's in Belter, but he has that big fight experience where Dan uh, Hooker got a glimpse of that against Dustin Poirier in a loss. It was a it was a close loss, but it's still a, a experience they can uh, grow from. And when I think of this fight, I, I feel like Chandler is going to go for the the takedowns. He's going to use the fakes to try and benefit him because if he tries to stand up in this fight, he's going to get beat because he's going to take too much damage at all levels because I think Hooker's going to start out with a lot of leg kicks. He's going to try and uh, bruise the legs of Chandler so the takedowns are eliminated. He's going to try and eliminate them by uh, weakening his legs from being able to move as fast as he usually can. And then he's going to just use that to his advantage, keep the stand up, and then uh, get that knockout. But if Chandler can go out from the getting, get the takedown and kind of wear out Hooker on the on the ground, he has a better shot at getting like a decision victory because I don't think he's going to knock out Hooker because Hooker, if you saw that fight against Poirier, he has a chin on him. He, he was taking both fighters were taking loads and loads of damage, and then they were, they just kept on going. It, Chandler's best chance is to get a uh, to get him on the ground and either try and submit him because he has a well rounded game at, at all a, a aspects. It's just that he's very dominant with his wrestling. That's his bread and butter. He just doesn't use it all the time because he, I guess, in Bellator you don't need to because some of the fighters are on the level of UFC. But he has fought UFC caliber fighters, uh, just like in Benson Henderson. He was a lightweight champion in WEC and UFC. So he does have that experience. He fought him, who has fought guys in that division and has had success against them. But he needs to know that his top priority is to get Dan Hooker down and do the ground and pound. Because if he can do that... He'll have like a a really good shot at uh, winning by decision or probably by knockout on the ground because 
when he does that, it, it's uh, he has a high success rate on the ground. But when he stands up with a guy that is beneficial at standing up with the with the boxing or kickboxing, it's not going to work out well because he's eliminating half of his game right there because it, it because you're eliminating the ground game and then you're just going with the stand up and. You as like a half and half stand-up artist compared to a, a seasoned stand-up artist, it's not going to go well unless you get lucky where he gets slipped. So I either have this as like a, a second-round knockout by Dan Hooker or I got Michael Chandler by decision. It all depends on what route Chandler goes with his game plan, whether – he tries to stand up like a man with, as you would say, with Hooker, or if he goes with his game plan of wrestling and getting the early takedowns and using that to his advantage. Because some people want want to see the fireworks, but when your your advantage and when your bread and butter is wrestling, you got to go with that because he can because he can use that, take him down, wear him out, and then when Hooker comes up. He is kind. Of, he'll be kind of tired. He can then stand up with him then because he he had made Hooker waste some energy trying to get back up from guard and to get back up to stand up to his bread and butter that he waste energy doing that because whenever you get a guy down and then you, you apply the your pressure on them to spell energy that should be his number one priority in this fight. To wear out Hooker in the beginning, and then the, you can engage with them uh, on the, on the standup because then he won't have that full adrenaline going. He'll be kind of tired from uh, defending the takedowns and then getting back up. So I, I like I said, I either have this as a like a first round knockout by Hooker or a third round uh, decision victory by Chandler. But all in all, to me, this is going to be the fight of the night for me. I think this is going to be the best one because I, I like the matchup. I like the unknown of Chandler coming into the UFC and then just being slotted right there in the in the top 10 because he should be there because of how dominant he was in Belter. But it's, it's, it's a safe thing as well to where he's not getting that initial title shot like he he's he's kind of earning it by because hooker i think is ranked number five right now so he's getting that yeah. top five matchup but he's not like boom he's not fighting habib he's not fighting olivier he's not fighting gagey or uh poirier or mcgregor he's getting uh hooker who hasn't fought since i think i think he fought poirier in april i think it was so it was march or april and so he's had time to recover from the beating he took from Poirier and then Chandler, I, I think I forget when he fought. It was a few months. I think it was this, around the same time uh, because uh, he fought in the Mohegan sun. Uh, and then, but he was able to get a quick victory in two minutes over uh, Benson. So he didn't take too much damage. So he's, he's kind of fresh. Uh, they, they had him up there as an alternate uh, for the Habib gauge fight. And, so he's been ready. He's been training. He, he's ready to go. Uh, you got Hooker ready to go. I'm, I'm I'm excited for it. But like I said, I got those two outcomes uh, uh, ready to go. And then you got Nicholas chiming in. He's 34. So which isn't too uh, bad. Is if you think about it, before five years ago when he saw all these young 
uh, athletes coming up in the UFC where they're coming up at age 21, age 24, 25. You got that one female, I think, flyweight that's 18, 17 or 18 that debuted over the summer. All of the fighters were in their 30s. They're, they're a little seasoned. They're a little later in life. And then that's that's the business now. Like you get a little seasoned, then you're ready to go because you got all that experience from training and doing all the all that. So all the guys that are co- coming out that are ready in the main event, they're they're in their 30s or not. But now you get to the point where where it's like the new UFC where you've seen all these younger guys come from different backgrounds. Like John Jones came from wrestling. Uh, you got this guy coming from actual professional wrestling, or you got these kickboxers and this and that. They're starting out early. They're getting an early advantage on because they, they, they know that they can use the endurance of being younger while they're actually training some of their other backgrounds. They know they can go the full distance and they can just go balls to the wall because by the time they get to that peak point at 30, 32, they have developed another thing, another style to go with it to where they can start molding their style differently to, to where they don't have to worry about just using their athleticism. They can actually be more uh, contained more uh, mature and have like a better style fighter because once you get older, you won't be able to last as much longer. Just look at uh, Cormier. Cormier, he he can't go uh, five minutes. Like he he could get tired, but he was in a lot of his fights. He was able to to dictate the fight with his wrestling, and that's how he lasted so much longer in his fights. He was smart, used his wrestling, and didn't spell too much energy because he was the one controlling the fight because he got older and he realized that's what he needed to do. And then that's why you saw him go from heavyweight to light heavyweight. But then as he got older, he decided to go back up to heavyweight because he, he didn't have to do all the wrestling. He was a small guy. He could wrestle, but when he went back up, he regained that power punch and he was able to knock guys out sooner. So he kind of did a trade-off. He was like, I'm a little bit younger. Let me use the, uh, use the, the ground game because I'm not being able to hit these big guys right now that are younger. But now then he grew older and he was like, these guys are catching up to me. I got John Jones here who has that background, but he's taller and lankier which is like a bad matchup for me to then he decide, Oh, I got to move up uh, back up to heavyweight to regain that knockout power because these guys at heavyweight are now getting older or I'm able to match up with them because I'm starting to get bigger and there's not that many takedown guys in heavyweight that there used to be with like the Brock Lesnar's or whatnot. I can I can dominate this with, with doing a little bit of ground game and then the knockout because I can do that. But once he got to the forty uh, age forty, he kind of lost a little bit of that because of Stipe. He fought Stipe and he was the more conditioned guy that can knock him knock him out and not get as tired. I see that with Channer being thirty two. 
he's more polished. I, I could see him being able to use all that that he's learned in Belter and then take that to UFC and then and then use that ground game to his advantage. Kind of like what it's not the same, not comparing him, but Habib. Habib uses that ground game, but he pushes the action. He pushes the fighter back to where he can put him in a situation where he could get that takedown. The guy's he's pushing the fight. The guy's on his back legs, and then you take him down. I've seen Chandler do that a couple times. He's not on that level, but on his on on days. He does it, but he uses more of the, the the head fake, like he's going to punch, like I said, and then he t- does it. So and the, I, I see it going both ways, but that's where I'm leaning towards. I'm leaning towards Michael Chandler by decision. But uh, now we're moving on to the to the main oh, event. Uh, oh, I still got to do my Chandler pick there. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I won't be long because it won't take long. I like to call Michael Chandler the best of the B-minus fighters. Uh, Miles, you said that he set a lot of records. Well, he did set a lot of records in a place where a lot of people aren't setting records. He's, you know, when you come to the UFC, and look, I'm a huge Ben Askren guy. Love Ben Askren. But the proof was in the pudding, man. When you come to the UFC, you are fighting the best. And you could take a guy like Dan Hooker, to go to Bellator and, and he would rule supreme over there. He's just another, a level, they're a level different, man. It's like the, going from college ball to NFL. It's a, it's a whole nother ball game with hookers range, his feints are what's going to be key in this fight. You know, I, I firmly believe the feints are going to, you know, hookers going to take the bait. He's going to catch knees. The only way possible he wins this fight is if he takes him down and lays and prays. If he stays on top of him, he doesn't have that great of a submission game. Now, I will say his wrestling is outstanding. Hooker does not want to wrestle with him. Hooker is also hard to keep down. Uh, Not a lot of guys have kept Dan Hooker down. So I'm going to go. I'm going with Hooker by knockout. Uh, Chandler showed he's shown that his chin, he's losing it with his chin. He doesn't have it like he used to. And uh, I think Hooker's going to knock him out. Probably third round, maybe fourth. It won't go the. It won't go to five, and I, I think, I think Chandler was. I think this was pretty much Dana's ego wanting the flex on Bellator. He could have picked three other lightweights that were better than Michael Chandler to come to the UFC. I, I don't, you know, I don't know what is. Oh, I, I we can't hear you, Miles. My bad. I muted my mic because hey. I was sneezing. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I feel like this is a Dana White wants to wants to make money kind of move. Like, yeah, wants to like kind of coast on the reputation that Michael Chandler's built in Bellator, and be like, ah, oh, we can we can make a lot of money. Not like you know Conor McGregor money, but we can make some money because we're going to pull in people from yeah. the Bellator camp and people from the UFC camp. We can get all of their money. It'll be great. <laughs> so, but let's so, not forget. Let's not forget, though, that Dan Hooker, uh, you saw in that Poirier fight, that he doesn't really try and block punches. He just takes same, them. Same with the Felder fight. Uh, yeah. People forget that fight. He, just know, he took a lot of punishment in that fight, too. Yeah. So, in essence, to me, the, the reason I, I, I go towards Chandler is because 
he doesn't have to engage, uh, engage that much. He could take him down, get up, and then engage, but he knows that uh, Hooker's not going to block it. So he, even if it doesn't knock him down or whatnot, he's going to take damage. And when he takes damage, he's going to be prone to being taken down uh, again because he's taking all that punishment because he's not trying to defend it. Yeah, and I think that will kind of work against Hooker in this fight because he didn't have to worry about getting taken down by Poirier because Poirier was going to stand up and fight with them. But when you got a guy that, that can stand up, he's not, not to that level, but he can hit you, but he can take you down. And then when you get back up, say you're 100% and then he, he takes you down. When Chandler takes you down, it's going to take about 10 20% out of your gas tank because you're going to try and get back up. And when you get back up, you're, you're not blocking. So right off the bat, if Chandler does it right away and it succeeds, you're at eighty percent already, and then you're going to take, and then you're going to stand up with them, and and you're going to not block them. You're going to be like, "Come here, hit me," and then you're going to hit him back. But he's going to be at hundred percent per se, and you're going to be but, at eighty percent. And but I so, can't see Chandler hanging on with him like that though. It, I, Chandler's I not going to stay in there like Poirier was or I like Felder because, would. Oh, there's the no difference way. Between, the difference between Chandler and Askren is Askren fought in one where he. he he dominated that, but what wrestlers? I mean, wrestlers. What fighters do you know there compared to Belter, where you got some of the fighters that used to be in UFC? So you have that taste of UFC there, especially Benson Henderson. But how did how did he do against those fighters? He's a three-time champ against two. He beat Benson Henderson twice, who was a former lightweight champion. He was in the UFC. Yeah, he, he was in the UFC. And then he he beat him twice. I'm and, just saying Chandler to me, and the same with Askren, but let's keep in mind when Askren fought in one, there was no drug testing over there. So he's fighting yeah. roided up freaks and out wrestling them. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I just don't think, like I said, I'm going with Hooker and I'm going, what, did, Miles, what are the betting odds on that fight? Do you know? I don't actually know. And, uh, Hooker <laughs> is, I think Hooker is a minus 110 and then Chandler's plus 110. So they have it as like a kind of they they give Hercule the, the the favorites odds, probably because he's in the UFC and the Chandler's debuting. Probably because he's but, gonna but, win. But for me, but for me, I, I feel like that's a good sign that if Chandler hasn't fought in the UFC before, but he's getting that close of an odds. It makes you feel like that they're leaning towards Chandler in this because he. Well, Dana's he, praying Chandler wins. If not, he just wasted a whole lot of money. <laughs> yeah. But then on another another level, this fight is only going three rounds, not five rounds, because it's not a championship fight. So that, in essence, Which to me, favors makes, Hooker. I, mm -hmm. I think that favors Chandler because he can just use the wrestling game, take him down, wear him out. And do the ground and pound because if he uh, if he lays and prays he has a chance but he but I don't, I don't think, I don't he, think he's, he's like gonna a be lay and tight though like he when he takes you down he's going and he's trying to either submit you or he's trying to ground and pound you he, he he's constantly moving and then he'll let you back up he let Benson back up and then and then he went to fake the takedown and then he knocked out Benson Henderson with a shot. Granted, Benson's not Hooker, but at the same time, Hooker 
doesn't have that big time experience yet. He just had mm -hmm. his big time fight. He fought Poirier and he lost. Whereas Chandler was a mainstay of the belter and he won the belt three times. So he, he has that experience of fighting the big fight fights uh, over there compared to Hooker, who just had his first one. He literally just had his first one and he lost by uh, a decision. That's why I favor him. But I do think that if Chandler gets away from his game plan and he decides at the very beginning, I'm just going to stand up with him and go away from the ground, the ground game, wrestling game, that's going to be a bad move for him because then it's going to take his advantage out of the game plan. And then that game plan goes advantage wise goes to hooker. But I think that Chandler knows that he needs to do the, the wrestling ground game. He knows it. And that, and I think that's why Dana White has him fighting hooker as the first fight, because it, it, the, the matchup works well for him, but also tests him at the same time. They're going to have a nice spot for Chandler after this fight. Every every company needs a, a stepping stone fighter, a gatekeeper <laughs> to maybe break into the top ten. Yeah, So when Dan, so when when Dan Hooker loses, he can be that stepping stone guy. Well, let me, let if me Dan Hooker loses this fight, I'll never show my face. Yeah. Let me consolidate down some of these ideas because I think you both made valid points, but I see I see some issues with with what you're thinking, D Bake. Um, first, when we talk about what fighters could do versus what they actually do, there's a big difference. Like when you're a coach, you've got you've got a few hats, you've got a few jobs you have to fill. One of them, obviously, you get you know train your fighters and you say, oh, this is a guy we're up against. Here's our game plan. But the other very important job of a coach is in the fight, you got to hold your fighter accountable and keep him on the game plan. Because I think what's going to happen is Michael Chandler is going to get there and then he's going to start fighting Dan Hooker and he's going to get hit real hard and his Fifi's are going to get hurt. And then he's like, well, now I have to knock him out. Like he's going to get invested in yeah. doing a stand-up because that's what happens. When someone hits you real hard, you're like, well, now I want to hit you real hard. And so his, his coach is going to be like, nope, you got you to gotta do the wrestling with him. And he's like, I don't want to. And at the end of the day, it's going to be Michael Chandler stepping into the ring, not his coach who's laid out the game plan and knows what he's got to do. It's, it's going to be Chandler who's got to fight the fight. And so I, I just don't think in the moment he's going to be like, I don't think that's going to be how he wants to enter the UFC is by laying on a guy for 20 minutes and then getting a decision victory. I think in his head, he wants to get the, the, the knockout. I mean, with a bang, man. Yeah, yeah. He wants, he wants to get that attention and that's going to work against him. And in terms of his wrestling, when he goes to the ground, you're right. He does work, but I think the issue is that he's just not going to think to do it. I mean, it might happen just because, you know, uh, Hooker is no no stranger to wrestling. We saw him wrestle with with Poirier, and on paper, Poirier is probably a way better grappler, uh, definitely on the ground, but probably even in wrestling. Um, it, whereas, whereas Hooker's strength is in his striking, but he's just such a big dude, and he's got all that reach. It's kind of hard to deal with him on the ground. Now, Michael Chandler could do it, but I don't think he's going to. So, I mean, when we talk about what he could do, I mean, he could do a lot of things. He could he could realistically, like, suplex him, and it would be amazing. Yeah. I don't think he's going to. I think he's going to try to stand and trade with this guy, and it's not going to work out well for him. And his I'm, coach is going to be in the corner like, get on top of him! And then Michael Chandler is just going to like, not by, have any of that. 
I'm just going by what he did last fight that in his last fight. And what he did was he did go with the ground game, but then he went and stood up after. He used, wants that to hit to, used that to his advantage, and he knocked uh, Benson out. So, but everybody. But he's about fighting Benson Henderson. He's he's fighting Dan Hooker. Yeah, but to me, I don't. <laughs> to me, I don't see a big difference between Benson Henderson and Dan Hooker because Dan Hooker and WEC right? and Dan Hooker, but not Benson Henderson and Bellator. That's a that's yeah, a whole other ball game. Yeah, but who was well, the he, he lost also, to the last fight? But we yeah, haven't seen the math we, doesn't work either. We like, haven't seen we yeah. haven't seen Hooker though. It doesn't work that way. We're yeah. like, oh, Henderson used to be in the UFC, and then he he did well here, and then it went over here. So by the transitive property, uh, Chandler has experience in the UFC because yeah. it doesn't no, but, work that way. But, but when I look at it, I see Dan Hooker is supposed to be in his prime. He has lost in his prime to Poirier. When I saw Benson Henderson in his prime, he won. He he's past his prime now, but he has that big time experience where he fought. He won in the UFC. It wasn't a big fall off. He went to uh, uh, Bellator and he won right away. But it, obviously he's uh, past his prime. But people forget he's past his prime because in the last two fights that he has losses, he's fought Michael Chandler, and. Everybody forgets, yes, Michael Chandler is a wrestling uh, guy, but he has improved dramatically in the other uh, styles because he he kind of would steer away from wrestle, uh, the wrestling uh, takedown. But he's improved in those other aspects where he can use those when needed. Well, to me, I feel like Cooker, he can stand up, kickbox. He does that really well. And then striking, but I don't think he doesn't do well uh, when I've seen him get taken down. He wants to stand up, and that's what he wants to do. And then he wants to engage. It, you were right that when, when you get into the game plan, you can go to that. But when you get into the fight, you need to stick to it or anything can fall apart. But I feel like with how seasoned Chandler is, he knows what he needs to do, and he knows if he gets off a game plan that he has a backup that, that he can go to. He's not like a young kid that can, can get fallen off a game plan and then just goes, let me do whatever. Like, oh, I need to punch. Let me punch or this and that. He has multiple outs and game plans that he can go to. That's why he's a three-time champion in Belter. I, I don't think it just because he's uh, coming from Belcher that means that he's at a disadvantage, a big time disadvantage. I'm just saying his competition in Bellator is completely a whole nother level compared to what he's about to step into. Yeah, but it's not like he's fighting Habib right away or Gage. He's fighting Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker is coming up. You don't know what Dan, Dan Hooker might be that next Gage or the next Khabib. He could. He could. But it. From what he, we've saw from him is he can he can dish it out and take it, but we saw him lose. Whereas with Chandler, we've seen him win lately, and, and he did it a lot. That's why he was a three time champ. Well, I mean, fights are individual trials. Yes. It's kind of like if I do coin toss. If I do ten coin tosses and they're all heads, it doesn't tell me anything about the eleventh coin toss, right? Well, but when he's coming off guy, of wins, but he's also stepping into a shark tank that he is very little experience with. I mean, 
like like Benson Henderson, yeah, he he fought in the UFC, but overall, like Michael Chandler, you know, if let's say uh, if we're kind of like putting people in order, we got like yeah. Khabib up here, and then we got like uh, Gagey and and Poirier and Oliveira here, and then and then down here you've got uh, uh, you know Dan Hooker. Well, if this is where Dan Hooker is, well, then a lot of the competition that that Michael Chandler's been fighting against in in Bellator is like down here. <laughs> so even I, I even though he, Dan like Dan Hooker isn't like the best thing ever in in UFC, he's still like he's going to be an unknown quantity in terms of what he's the the caliber of fighter that Michael Chandler's used to fighting against from Bellator. And Chandler yeah, but- Chandler beat Benson Henderson. Before that, he was supposed to fight Brent Primus, and Primus pulled out. So then he fought an unknown and some guy named Sidney Outlaw. And then before that, he got knocked out in the first round by Patricio, you know, Pitbull in the first. So he doesn't – I don't think he fared well against a, a, uh, you know, against a striker. I just don't see him winning this fight. But who has – who did Hooker fight before he fought Poirier? Felder, uh, yeah. <laughs> he fought Felder, who has been on, who's a tough ass guy, but he hasn't won. He's been. I would uh, pick Paul Felder to beat Michael Chandler. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I, I like Felder, and he's from Philadelphia, so I, I know a lot about him. But I, I, I'd still take the the proven commodity, the guy. Like, I'm not overstretching that because he's come from Belter. That that's not a disadvantage. I'm just saying he's part of a bunch of different style fighters, whereas Hooker is just getting going. He fought a big fight and he lost, but we don't know how he does against like a wrestler or how he does against this or that. We just know what he did against Poirier because that's the only thing that he's had lately. But we do know what Chandler did. Because he he was seasoned, he there's a reason why Dana plucked him from Belter is because you're not going to give up on him. I want you, boy. You ride with him, man. I'm just I just know know, the experience factor has something has something to do with it. Just look at Cormier. Cormier came over. I think he came over. Was it Belter or was it Strike Force? Strike Force. Strike Force. Yeah, he was one of the guys. Rockhold and Woodley and. When they got bought out. Yeah, he's one of the guys that came over, and then he had immediate success coming over from there. It was right away. He, he, he got that uh, lightweight, uh, I think, title shot after being an alternate in the Grand Prix. No one mm. expected him to uh, do that, but because of it, and he's a same, similar guy. He, he, he wrestling background, uh, uh, a little bit older, I think he was 35 to where Chandler is 31. Th- was it 34? I believe it is Chandler but, 34. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah but, he's 34. It's in the comments. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think Chandler's gonna win. If if he if he loses, he loses. I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll bite it. I'll bite in on the chin. Whatever. I'll, I'll, oh, I'll, I'll he will never see me again. I talk so <laughs> bad about Michael Chandler. I'll never write. I'll have to hide my face forever. <laughs> yeah, I feel but, like this fight is analogous to when I was fifteen. I, I was doing uh, I was doing full contact tournaments back in the day, and when I was fifteen, that's when uh, the the age group changed for me. 
like 14 was the top of like the teenager age group. And then I went up to the adult age group and like when I was in the teenager age group, holy shit, I dominated that shit. Like I, I was taking definitely second, but most of the time I'd get, I'd get first place prizes in, in a lot of those tournaments. But then I, I went up to the adult uh, age bracket, which is like 15 to 30 plus. So there's like a huge spread. And I remember my very first fight was against this guy he was probably like 25 or something he was probably three feet taller than me <laughs> like i was like down here this guy's like and i remember it was it was completely one-sided they went like and go and then the next thing there was just like a foot right here <laughs> like it just happened like that like three consecutive rounds i was like oh shit <laughs> but turns out that guy had only been like he he was not like a guy who consistently got first place he was like a fourth third place fighter in, in the division but like me coming up from 15 year olds trying to compete there i was too small i didn't i didn't have the the physical prowess or the or the you know experience to hang and i feel like that's exactly what's going to happen to chandler yeah yeah but before we uh, waste too much more time on the co-main event <laughs> that we have, let's move on to the to the main event uh, of of this evening, which is a lightweight division matchup between Dustin Poirier against Conor McGregor, and this is their second fight that they last fought, and I believe it was 2014, I believe it was, where yeah. McGregor won that one. Uh, what do you, what are your predictions for this miles? Uh, so this one, oddly enough, I was able to kind of come down more on one side than the other. Whereas like with, with the hooker and Chandler fight, I was still like, ah. but even, even then with this fight, it is still kind of tentative. So I might change my mind, but Poirier, uh, he's, he's got on paper, a better grappling background. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He's definitely got wrestling experience. It shows in his fighting. Um, and he's got a KB, a little bit of KB sprinkled in there. Um, now I think he's going to go into this, the kind of the X factor for, for Poirier is that he's going to have something to prove this time around. Like I think last time that he lost to Conor McGregor, He's evolved a lot since then. I think he's grown a lot, and I think he wants to show that growth by by taking out Conor McGregor. I think this is personal for him. So in terms of his fighting ability, what's interesting is the first three things I have for um, Poirier are the same first three things I have for McGregor. Because it looks like what's happened since the first Poirier-McGregor fight is that Poirier has almost started to look more like McGregor in his fighting approach. It's a different flavor, but when you break down what he's doing, it's, it's very similar. Uh, he's got good, uh, good movement overall, a lot of forward pressure in his standing game. Um, he's good at fighting at long range, but then he can close that distance quickly when he needs to, just like he did with the, with the hooker fight, which everybody thought that that huge reach advantage would be a big problem, but it, it was like he could just get in there and hit him whenever he needed to. Um, he's a power striker. He's got a decent amount of, of striking power behind him, uh, but he also has an excellent sense of timing and gauging. And that's really what allows him to land significant strikes seemingly at will. So like, again, with the hooker fight, it seemed like he would have trouble, but he would just, he would catch hooker at, at opportunities where he wasn't expecting it. And that's really how he was able to get those big shots in just regularly against a much bigger, much, much lankier guy. Um, he favors a mid guard, which is a little bit lower. It's like down here. It's not quite up here. 
Um, but what's interesting about that is he's still able to maintain a very tight guard uh, because when you watch him fight, he almost preempts what he thinks the other person is going to do. And a lot of time, because of the experience he's gained, he's right. Like when you see him like throw shots out there from like a mid guard, uh, mid guard position, he'll throw a shot, but he'll, he'll instinctively come up here and you know, he'll, you'll find him consistently like defending these, these headshots, even though his hands start from down here. So he's, he's got a good sense of, of guard control, even though his hands are a little bit lower than most fighters. Now, some problematic things I see, he's got this, this weird bong sow sort of thing that he's adopted. Uh, that it's the thing where he does this and you see it a lot. He really likes this thing. Um, I don't know what else to call it other than a bong sow in, in Wing Chun. It's a block. It's called bong sow. It's, it's this exactly. And it's, it's got some benefits, but it's not like a perfect thing. See, the pros are, it lets you cover high and low quarters almost simultaneously. Like if I'm right here, I can just lift to cover this section of my head and then I can scan across if I need to cover low or if I need to cover high on this side, I've got something here as a barrier to kind of buffer things off. And that's how you see him use it a lot of the time. He'll kind of come up high to, to defend his head or he'll you know try to parry things low if it's coming towards the rib area. But the problem with that is this doesn't have as much stopping power in terms of a block as this does. This is structurally sound. Like this triangle, there's a reason triangles are very sound in nature because this structure helps to absorb impact way more effectively than this does. And that's what, what we see is sometimes when he tries to block something, it's really not much of a block. It still gets through anyway. And when we're talking about the striking power that McGregor has, I don't think you're going to want to walk in there with like a, a half block, you know, like that's just not a smart idea. So I think that could probably be problematic, um, especially because this is not super great for uh, head body combinations. Like he's trying to, you can't defend both things at once. You got to pick. And that's one thing McGregor does do is he's more of an unorthodox striker. So if he starts throwing those head body combinations, when, you know, Poirier is over here like this, I think he's going to get caught quite a bit. Um, of course, from the last fight, we saw that uh, Poirier has a lot of impact resistance as well. He can stand and trade with the best of them. He's got great hit recovery. He's also got fight endurance. He, he hung in there for five rounds of, of freaking Rocky Balboa and, and Ivan Drago part two in the, in the ring. And he went the whole five rounds. Um, he's got excellent takedown defense and he's got great wrestling ability. Um, he's good at problem solving while he's on the ground. He's got good submission defense, of course. Um, and he will look for those opportunities to submit, which is interesting because you see him like he always tries to go for that, that guillotine choke and he never, never quite gets it. <laughs> they always, they always find their way out, but he's, you know, bless his little heart. He's going to keep trying. Maybe one of these days they'll get it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he doesn't have that many submission victories in terms of his career. And what's interesting, the only two career submissions he has happened before he ever entered the UFC. He's never won by submission in the UFC. So, I mean, his, I his ground that. game is, yeah, I, I, that surprised me a little bit too. I was like, I was looking through all the, the things on the website. I was like, no, it's got to be in here. It's got to be, <laughs> but no, sure enough. So, yeah, I think his, his ground game is mostly to dominate and control, you know, look for those opportunities to wear them out, slow them down, put them back on their feet and dominate with his striking because that's really where most of his victories are. And then on the other hand, you got Conor McGregor. 
he's uh he's he's gained a lot more experience too like poirier has evolved as a fighter since then that first fight but so is conor mcgregor like back then i remember conor mcgregor was like this guy and everybody's like oh he's like a this weird phenom because he i remember at the time he was talking about like i've never been in a jujitsu gym i've never worn a jujitsu gi before like i did some boxing with my dad and i did boxing at a gym i think because he was getting into fights or something in high school but like a lot of the traditional training you would expect an MMA fighter to have. He was bragging that he didn't have it. Well, fast forward to today, he's actually a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt now. Like he's gotten that experience now. He's gotten that formalized training. Um, of course, he's he's also expanded his wrestling quite a bit. We see we see a different sort of uh, standing grappling um, Conor McGregor nowadays than we used to back in those days. So he's it's not like he's stayed the same, right? Um, now. Like I said, the first three things I mentioned with with Poirier are pretty much the same things with McGregor. Only McGregor did them first. Like essentially, that's been his method this whole time. He's just refined it over the years. Um, now the the biggest difference is with the midguard. Uh, McGregor also tends to favor a midguard. You see him; he's he's got this almost like traditional kung fu thing where he like has one hand kind of a little bit further out than the other one. Um, and he's, he's always like trying to grab that first, that front hand, try to pull it down, create an opening, that sort of thing. Um, but what's interesting is while Poirier maintains a tight guard control, McGregor uses movement and evasion more. Like he's not super worried about getting these hands up to cover. He'll just sort of slip and move and, and evade to get out the way. Uh, now in terms of his wrestling, like I said, he's come a long way. But even now, he's not like a super technical. Like he's not a Michael Chandler, right? <laughs> like he's not he's not going to win the NAACP Division One Championship anytime soon. But he's better. He's he's refined his he's refined his wrestling ability through experience mostly. Like going in with guys who are much better wrestlers who do know what they're doing, and over time with his coaching and just you know metal or, or what's the term uh, steel sharpens steel. You know he goes in against these real experienced wrestlers and he picks things up from that experience. Uh, now, in terms of his his ground game, he he's not really one to go for submissions. I think he's on like one in his career. I don't even know if that even happened in the UFC. Yeah, one one career submission victory, but it happened before he entered the UFC. So no, he's never had a UFC submission victory. But instead, his ground game is all about maintaining good pressure and control, and then peppering in his strikes and and trying to to get them to essentially either one wear them out, tire them out and then knock them out when they're on their feet or just finish it with ground and pound, just depending on the scenario. Um, but he doesn't spend a lot of time even really looking for submissions. It's not a, doesn't seem like a thing he's concerned with, even though now he actually has the training and the expertise to do that kind of thing. We just don't see it a lot. Now, in terms of the, the final decision, if we, if we're looking at uh, KO or, or technical knockout, it could go either way, and this is probably the, the scenario I'm, I struggle with the most because Poirier has come a long way, and like I said, he, he's, he's adopted a lot of the same methods that make McGregor successful, and he's got the striking power to do it. But I, I would still have to go with McGregor on a knockout victory based on the fact that he is more seasoned at using this approach than Poirier's because Poirier's adopted it. He's always had it. It's like, uh, it's like when uh, Batman was fighting Bane and he, he like disappeared in the shadow is he's like, Oh, you've only adopted the darkness. I was born in it. That's basically the same thing we're talking about here. Right. 
Um, so I would say just because McGregor is better at doing the thing than he is, uh, I would give it to McGregor. But by a narrow margin, like don't be surprised if we see a Poirier knockout because he's he's come a long way. So it'd be interesting to see kind of these two fight it out and, and see who's grown more since the last fight. Now, in terms of a submission, if Poirier is smart, he this is going to be his his avenue to victory. Like this would be the game plan. I don't necessarily think this is what he's going to try to do. Like I said, it's Poirier who's got to fight the fight, not his coach who comes up with the game plan. And I think Poirier is going to want a knockout because McGregor knocked him out. And so it's like a, like a tit for tat, you know, like a, like a, ah, now I knocked you out. What's up? Like, so I think that's in his mind. I think that's where he's going to be at mentally, but if he wanted to, obviously his wrestling experience and his submission expertise, he could use that to wear McGregor down very similar to how Khabib did, you know, Khabib, yeah, he traded with McGregor. Sure. But really what wore out McGregor was just having to fend off all that grappling and, and just, constantly problem solving and having his options taken away from him. Poirier could do that with his wrestling and then over time, maybe slip in a submission, probably not like a guillotine, maybe, maybe an arm bar. He's not good at the guillotines yet. He's still trying though. Um, and then if it goes to decision based on the stats, I would give it to Poirier. Uh, he's got more career decision victories. Uh, he's also uh, on average, he lands more punches per minute. He absorbs fewer punches per minute. Uh, and he has more takedowns on average, probably because of his background. And especially when you look at the stats between these guys, besides those categories, everything else is pretty much dead even. So the guy who's got these slight advantages, if it goes to the cards and you know they fight as, as they normally would, then that's what we would as- expect to see. But I, I don't necessarily see this going to decision. I think this is this is a grudge match. This is gonna be this is gonna be personal. So or do you, Sam? I think we need to look at the timeline. So I, I wrote down some notes for this one because I can't remember everything. All right. Conor McGregor's last fight at lightweight was when he beat Eddie Alvarez for the belt. That was 2016. Mm-hmm. Since then, he's lost to Khabib in 2018. He's lost to Floyd Mayweather 2017. Sorry, I went backwards. And then he... His last fight was January 20th. January 18th, he beat Cowboy at Welterweight, which was didn't impress me one bit. Really didn't. Since 2017, just like with Connor, we've seen we've seen Dustin Poirier beat Jim Miller, a no DQ with Eddie Alvarez, Anthony Pettis, Justin Gaethje, Eddie Alvarez, Max Holloway, and then lost to Khabib. We're talking about a completely different fighter, as you said, Miles. When we're talking about Dustin Poirier here, I don't think I don't think McGregor realized just what time can do to you when you're off for as long as he has been and non-competitive, and then you're fighting a guy that's been as competitive with the very best in the division since pretty much you last fought, since they last fought in 2014. Dustin's been fighting everybody and he's been winning. The move up in weight from featherweight to lightweight was huge for him. They fought at featherweight last time. McGregor's a big featherweight, like he was a big light, like he's a big lightweight. He's a big guy. I mean, we just saw him fight at welterweight. He's got the frame for welterweight. So I'm easily, I wouldn't say easily, but if I were going to bet, I think Dustin Poirier shocks everybody with this one. And I don't even think it should be a shot. Dustin Poirier is a great fighter. He's He's got beautiful striking. He can hang in there and take a punch. 
I think I think he beats Conor McGregor this fight. I think it's uh, probably a decision. I don't think it's going to be a knockout. I think I think Poirier, I think Poirier edges him out on a decision. Conor does not have the best gas tank, but then again, Poirier has been known to kind of gas toward the end of some fights too. So I, I'm going to go with Dustin Poirier, and I'm going to give it a decision. And that's the reason I don't think Khabib comes back is because he's already dominated Dustin Poirier. That, so that's why I'm kind of getting that. Khabib's not going to want to fight a Charles Oliveira or somebody that doesn't bring name value like, you know, a Poirier or a Gaethje. Or, and he's beat everybody. So I'm going with Poirier in this one, guys. That's you, Bakes. See, the one thing with me that hasn't been talked about with this fight where, like, the first fight McGregor won is the mind games. Uh, uh, a big thing that McGregor does is he gets inside of his opponent's head with, with the trash talk and everything like that. He just And what he did in the first fight was he got inside Poirier's head. Big time. Big time. And just leading up to the fight. And then Poirier wanted nothing to do but to beat the shit out of him, got out of his game plan, and, and McGregor popped him. Yeah. He got caught, and I, I, I feel like it's not going to be any different. I might see Poirier be a little bit more uh, mature dealing with it, but at the same time, he's going to want that in the back of his head. He's going to have that revenge factor where he wants to redeem himself for losing uh, to McGregor. And I think when you've seen past fights other than Habib, Habib's just a different breed. He he actually, Habib took out both Poirier and McGregor the same way with the rear, rear naked choke. They actually had like a meme out of a picture of Poirier and McGregor and it says the main event of 257. It shows Habib choking them both out. But uh, mm. Uh, but with McGregor is he gets inside the guy's heads. He got inside Poirier. He got inside Aldo uh, big time. He got inside him big time. He got inside Eddie Alvarez a little bit, not too, uh, too much. Uh, I Pretty think, bad. <laughs> I, I think yeah. that he lost the Diaz fight the first time, but I think that was because he was training for Alvarez came in, and then a week uh, with a week left in the fight, uh, Alvarez got hurt. They replaced him with Diaz, and McGregor was like, "Okay, whatever. I'm not gonna train any differently." He took it lightly, and then he got beat because it was a different style. He came into it lazy, and that's why he saw in the second fight he took it seriously, and it was still a great fight. But he won the fight. Uh, and then the theme with the McGregor is with a lot of his fights is does he come in training uh, the right way or is he going to take it lightly? You've seen him, even the Habib one, I thought he came into that lightly because he just because it was right after he did the boxing fight with uh, Floyd Mayweather. I thought he did that one, uh, uh, got a lot of money from that and then came in and was like, I can just take this fight lightly. He was, he, a beat. He was big headed. Big yeah, he was big headed. And then he got beat. And then afterwards, he took like six months off. And then he got his mind right and wasn't big headed. And then he fought a Cowboy. And he came in in that fight fresh and ready to go. And he trained for it. And he caught him with the shoulder. 
but he came in like a bad out of hell. He came in storming at Cerrone and got caught him off guard and knocked him out in, the, in, in less than a minute. It's always a matter of how how is he going to do it. He can suck you out, or he can come in train and then come at you. And then, just like Miles said, he likes to put the arm out to keep the guy at bay. And it's kind of his blocking mechanism is him keeping him at bay. It helps I mean, him find range too. Yeah, he finds really then, good range with it. He's yeah, precision and, then he in, and and he's probably one of the best power punchers in that division. If he, I'll put him at number, maybe number one because when he hits you, it hurts, and like it really hurts. And then he's shown that with the guys he's knocked out and Aldo, Alvarez, Poirier. He he, he knocked he knocked him out. Uh, he knocked out Seaver. Like even he beat up Max Holloway uh, earlier on. Uh, I think that that was the fight that he had after Poirier at that time. It was a, a older time, but. He was able to do that, and then if if you look at Poirier, what he did to Holloway, that's what Holloway struggled with: is the, those guys that are coming at you with the power punches hitting you first. McGregor's going to try and attack you first, but he's going to use the mind games to kind of like try and get you off that game. And I feel like he's going to have that uh, have that tactic in play with this fight. He's going to kind of jerk around, laugh. Uh, Get kind of get Poirier going and get him over aggressive than what he should be, and try and catch him trying to go for the early hit, and he's going to move away like he does, and then he's going to hit Poirier. And I feel like this. I, I don't think it's a first round, but I, I feel like McGregor's going to win with a second round knockout because the longer it goes, the better it looks for Poirier. Even though Poirier kind of got gassed down against Hooker, but then Hooker got plucked with a hit and that kind of helped out Poirier get his uh, gas tank a little it bit ramped back, him back up. it ramped him back up yeah. because he got excited he's like boom I got him hit now now he's rocked like me so it's anybody's game and that kind of got him going again I haven't had to see that from McGregor so I don't know what to expect from it so to me it's either McGregor's gonna have to win like that which he's done before or if the fight goes later on, I'm going to favor Poirier a little bit more to where I think it's either going to be a second-round knockout by McGregor or a decision victory by Poirier because I know he can last that long, and he's done it several times. But I'm going to lean towards the knockout by McGregor because I've seen him do it before to Poirier. And then a little-known thing that I've seen Poirier do, sometimes he leaves himself open too much. Yeah, like like you said, like he goes like this. Sometimes he just leaves him his. I think it's his left side. It's either left side or right side. I'm not sure. He tends to leave it open a little too much. Whereas if a guy that's really good with striking can notice it, he can catch him at the right time. And I think that's how yeah McGregor caught him the first time. So if he doesn't uh, defend that the, the way he should, this could go even shorter. But I think he, uh, like he could take a little bit more punishment now compared to what he did before. And that's why I think it's the second round because I think McGregor's just uh, heads and toes, uh, toes ahead of most of the class when it comes to his striking. But to me, it's going uh, to be really exciting to watch because these, these two have been 
through some fights uh, with each other and then with other guys. And, and just this whole card uh, has the potential to be uh, one of the best cards uh, of the year. It won't be better than uh, the card in March. I'll tell you that, but I think it, that it'll be able to stand out in, in the future as being one of the top five of the year if all the fights uh, uh, live up to the hype. Well, you know, it's usually these big cards that disappoint us, and it's the little <laughs> cards like we had Saturday that, you know, aren't really meant to be the, the main eventers that really show out. It's always, you know, hopefully it's a good card, I, you know. Yeah. And, and, and that's hope. why... And that's why, like you were t talking before, you were saying these two guys have lost to Habib, and there already has been competition. And the way I saw Max, I'm like, that is competition for him, even though I've seen because I won't have to worry about Habib uh, striking him because I think Habib would be more worried about the takedown and trying to t pressure him and go for the takedown. I could see Max coming in strong with the combinations to slow him down. We could say that, and then Habib could still do what he does best. I mean, but, you know what they said about Gaethje is like, oh, he's got all that striking power. What's Habib going to do? Submission. But we did see him struggle with it in the first uh in the first uh, round, but we saw Gagey kind of being mm. all erratic with how he was dealing with it. I mean, that's but, one of the things you know, I said when we were looking at Gagey. I was like, well, he's he's got striking power, but he's he's not all that technically proficient because yeah. what he does is he uses his movement to cover the gaps of what you would normally need to have to be technically proficient. Because uh, he doesn't really have as as developed a skill set for that particular thing, he's really a wrestling guy. Which yeah. wrestlers have excellent uh, body kinesthetics; they understand how their body moves through the through the air, uh, and so that's what he would do. He could use his general movement and his sense of gauging and timing to land those real big hits without having to be like a professional boxer. And so when he goes up against uh, uh, Khabib, who is probably between the two the more technically proficient striker. We just see him, him not being able to land those hits as easily. And I remember I, I was watching him fight. At, it was at Buffalo Wild Wings. I actually showed that fight. Hmm. Um, when I was watching him, he was mostly swinging at air. When he, I was like, oh, he's going to throw that big hit because you could tell he was loading it up. And then he swung, and then Khabib just moved out the way. He just moved out the way. And then he got him once. Like There was one time in that fight that I think Gaethje he got him yeah, and he, he wasn't expecting him. it. That bop, bop combination where he went high and then smacked him in the ribs. And then you saw uh, uh, Khabib go like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I think yeah. that's the one time he caught him and he wasn't expecting it. But, I mean, <sighs> yeah, just – I don't know. Max Holloway's good. I like Max Holloway. I think he's he's a very interesting striker. But Khabib is is just we we've seen this before where it's like yeah they're good strikers and they got a lot of power and they got a lot of options when it comes to stand up, you know, doing stuff on the on their feet. But he's just so good at being like, no, that's not gonna. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna we're gonna take this to the ground and I'm just gonna take away. I just, just want to see. I just want to see it because. <laughs> Max is really his thing is speed and combinations. He's not he's not more power. It's more speed and combinations. Keep himself on the move. He has that five round endurance. He looked stronger in round five than he did in round one. Just and, like a big gas tank, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like he could get taken down, but I feel like his gas tank will stay the same or not go down too much. 
it, his weakness has been the the elite strikers like Poirier. And, uh, he got beat up by that because Poirier just came at him with the power punches right away and wore him out that way because he mm. took too much damage. And Poirier was the one to initiate the the contact first, like Cater should have done, uh, and then and then even McGregor too. But other than that, I've seen uh, usually Holloway's the one to engage first. Habib kind of counters his guys. He kind of counters them, let them do it, and then he comes back in, pressures them. But I, I would like to see how Habib reacts when he got a guy like that who engages first, but he comes at him with a bunch of combinations. It's not just power hit, recharge, come back around, power hit. It's shot, 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 kick, come back around, mm -hmm. shot, 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 kick. It's like several things at once, so he has to process it all, uh, which I haven't seen him have to do that much. I, I've seen him deal with a lot of power guys and not a lot of combo speed guys that can endure mm -hmm. a five-round fight. Because the, like McGregor, he's he can't endure that. Poirier, he can, but his gas tank isn't the best. Uh, who's another guy? El Akita, he doesn't do much damage. He can go five rounds. He he went five rounds with him, but he yeah, was but he didn't do anything. He didn't do <laughs> yeah. He didn't do anything. Uh, who am I missing? What guy that he, uh, Habib has fought? Michael lately? Johnson. Uh, Michael lately, Johnson. Uh, uh, who? Oh, who is it? Because he only defended the, the belt three times. Yeah. But when he defended, defended it was against like power guys that kind it, of reached his last three had been Gaethje, Poirier, and Ayakinka. Yeah. And then that's it. Uh, we haven't seen him fight that guy with endurance that doesn't worry about the big shot, that he just worries about volume and builds mm -hmm. it up. I want to see how he does against that. That's why I, I feel like. Holloway could be a guy to challenge him and give him a different matchup problem to where uh, like where it would be something to see him beat him last because then it's like, okay, I fought these power guys, but I never fought a guy like Holloway where he's all about volume and he can go the whole distance. And then he could keep me from doing the, the ground game because he's constantly hitting me, keeping me from like, getting ready to go. Like, I'm getting ready to go. Boom, he hits me. Then he, boom, he mm -hmm. kiss me with a kick. Then he comes at me with a, a backhand. He just, he keeps pressuring you. That's what he did with Cater. He pressured him. That's what he did early on with uh, Volkanovski. What Volkanovski did later on, which uh, Habib could do, is then get the ground game going later on. But we don't know how Habib, Habib could do later on. We don't know how he does. I would think that he would do uh, be able to do that, but we just don't know because all Habib's stuff usually lasts early. And then the only one or two that lasted later on, the guys weren't really good strikers where it didn't really matter. He, mm -hmm. he had them beat, and then they were just in there to last for the end of the fight to say that they didn't get uh, beat by anything other than this decision. But like I want to see that. I, I'm probably one of the ten percent that do. A lot of people want McGregor or maybe Poirier again. Mm -hmm. I want to see Max Holloway. I want to see something fresh. I think I, I, I want to see him retire. Yeah. <laughs> huh? 
I want to see him retire. <laughs> that too. I, I wouldn't mind that, but you know he's going to have that one last fight to get him to that 30 and no. He hates, that, he hates that weight cut, man. It gets harder yeah. every time for him. But just, almost, seeing, just seeing him retire at that 29 and 0 just looks weird. It looked better at 30 and 0 and it'll make it like more like boom, like kind of like Mayweather. Mayweather got the 50 and 0 and then he retired. He didn't want to stay at 49 and 0 uh, and with, with his boxing record. He he was like, boom, 50 and 0, I'm done. And then he retired. But uh we're done with, we're done with the the predictions finally. Almost 3 hours later. Yep. <laughs> which which is fine. But uh if you want to catch any of our other po- live podcasts, we got a wider range of uh uh, podcasts on here stem all the way from all the sports to entertainment, and we just added a movie, a movie and TV one in Whiskey Cinema on Sunday nights, which I believe will be uh, they'll be premiering back on our network this week or next week. I, I forget what it is, but we've just brought them in. They're great guys, uh, and they always have good uh, shows with different uh, themes. Like yesterday, it was Sword and Stone uh, theme, so they were talking about shows and movies that had to do with swords swords and shields. That's what it is. Uh, so they did a little bit of talk about that, but here's our video for the schedule for the uh, each week on The Buzz. Tell them that's what we ready for. War. Tell them that's what we ready for. War. Bringing that to competitors. Do we see the confetti fall? Be ready for war. Tell them that's what we ready for. War. Tell them that's what we ready for. War. Bringing that to competitors. Do we see the confetti fall? Be ready for war. Tell them I'm ready any opponent. The crown heavy and every minute is chosen. A path only fit for kings, and you will know what this court means. What did you win this for? If it isn't getting more rings, then you gon' have to switch your team. Uh, trust me, it gets more mean. I'm a nightmare going up against your dreams. First step is explosive like a bomb hit. Bet if I let it fly, I cannot miss. And you ain't got a chance at the top ten when you getting clamped all night by your locksmith. On the block, throwing lobs to my top pigs. I'm a chef, no look with the top dish. Tie game, through the pressure as the clock ticks. Cross over, step back, hit a shot, squish. Tell them that's what we ready for. Tell them that's what we ready for. Bringing that to competitors. Do we see the confetti fall? Be ready for war. This is how champions are made, but it never happens in a day. It's all hard work, but it's why what happens when we play nine out of ten times. I'm gonna left you with. Do you guys have any uh, parting words before we get going? Hey, nope. it was a pleasure, and I'll see you guys after the pay per view. There you go. There you go. And I actually, I got a, I got an interesting announcement. So starting on the, uh, the 28th, um, actually normally the laps and rec podcast is an audio only podcast, but starting on the 28th, it's going to be a hybrid podcast. Um, I'm changing up my schedule a little bit to where, uh, every week there's going to be both audio and video streaming content available. Um, it's going to be through my Twitch channel. Um, obviously I'll be promoting the buzz on there as well. But uh, we'll be doing uh, alternating weeks for Tuesday, Thursday on the live streams. And, of course, audio content every Friday. Um, It'll be alternating between full episodes and and mini episodes. Uh, But the first one will be on the 28th. It's going to be great. Uh, We're going to be doing a deep dive. Thursdays will typically be deep dives where I go into very specific topics or we look at a specific thing and we, we spend the whole stream talking about that. 
Um, I'm going to have on Samantha from the Random Acts of Self podcast. She has a lot of psychological expertise. And we are going to be making fun of uh, pickup artistry as an industry and how it's a bunch of pseudoscientific bullcrap. Um, and then the following Tuesday, I'm having on Jim from the Friday Night Music Party. Guys, real into politics and, and nerd stuff. And we're going to do uh, every Tuesday is going to be a variety show. We got a bunch of stuff on the board. We spin the wheel, and whatever the wheel lands on, that's what we'll talk about. Oh, that's uh, cool. Right now, I think we've got uh, Andrew Tate uh, videos lined up. We've got Nerdiverse stuff where we talk about MCU, DC Universe stuff. We got, um, I think it's conspiracy theories and sovereign citizen stuff. And of course, we've got uh, Chud Watch, which is like uh, politics and and uh, things like that. So it'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun. Those two are going to be a good way to kind of start off the new schedule. But uh, I think that'll make me the first hybrid podcast. I know we were talking about another one who wanted to do that, but but I think I got there first. I don't know. That, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Tune in for all of that. It's gonna be it's gonna be real cool. It's gonna be a lot of fun. And of course, I'll be on here doing doing MMA stuff. Because I don't get to do that enough, especially yeah. with, with quarantine and stuff. These walls are my friends now. They could, <laughs> they could tell stories. People would be hoarding. No, I'm just kidding. Yep. And mm-hmm. once again, that's uh, the Laugh, Laughs and Rec podcast. on. Uh, you said Tuesdays and Thursdays? Tuesday, Thursday, right around uh, 5 or 6 p.m. Central is probably when the streams will start. They'll probably be three, four hours. So just tune in anytime and, and you'll catch some good stuff. Yeah. So catch that. On, and you said Twitch, right? I'm be on Twitch. Um, right now I'm using StreamYard. So I think they're also allowing me to stream at other, like uh, I think I can do Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, yep. I got to set that up, but right now it's, it's Twitch, but uh, obviously I'll be tweeting it out and there'll be a, a live stream link for Facebook and Twitter. So yep. lots of places you can find it, but Twitch is the home base. Yeah. So for the most part, follow him on Twitter and on his uh, at the Laughs and Rec podcast every Tuesday and Thursday at six Central Time. It will say, and then if you want to catch Sam, uh, catch his great articles uh, called Devil's Advocate, uh, where he does a bunch of articles on MMA. Uh, he, he has done a few on uh, wrestling that have been very good. So catch him there on the, on the Buzz's uh, Facebook or Twitter where we post all of our articles. And then I'm not sure if we're going to cover next week uh, after uh, next Monday where we'll cover uh, uh, because I think there's two weeks be- before the Alistair Overeem Alexander Volkov uh, fight night. Uh, February 9th. Yeah, which is fe- fe- yeah. actually I think it's February 6th. Yeah, February 6th it is. Uh, uh we might cover that. If not, we'll definitely be covering uh, UFC uh, 258, which is Burns and Usman. That card's going to be really good. But with them headlining it, I've been waiting a while for it since uh, July. Uh, it should be a great matchup with Burns being the guy that moved up from uh, – I, th- I think he moved up from lightweight, yeah. I believe. Yeah, lightweight. Uh, a guy that Hooker did beat—that's who Hooker yeah. did beat. It was Burns before he moved up, and then uh, before he started taking all these fights left and right, and got himself mm-hmm. in the position for Usman. But we'll definitely be covering that around because that fight's the 13th. So expect us to definitely be on uh, the—I think it's the 8th. Yeah, it's February 8th. So we're definitely be on February 8th uh, that Monday at 8 o'clock to cover that card. 
And then we're going to try and be covering a little bit more than just once a month. Uh, I'm trying to do at least two to three times a month at the least so so we can be more active because with the UFC, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of cards now than there used to be. And we want to be able to help you guys uh, with our predictions. So definitely tune in. Uh, subscribe to The Buzz on Twitter or YouTube and like on Facebook and check out all the all the stuff that we have to offer and don't hesitate to comment on the on our live podcast and if there's anything you want to see on cage my IQ let us know and we'll get back to you on it but I'm D Bake this is Sam and this is Miles and you guys have a nice night be good fellas <laughs>